0: Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca
1: Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff,
0: the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. And today, in honor of the Boston Marathon, which will be running a few days after this comes out, it'll be April 17th. I have a special episode I've been wanting to do for a long time
1: oh well i'm gonna be in boston the day of the marathon not that i want to oh, you're but... gonna run it <laughs> yes
0: i am and i'll probably win that's appropriate for this topic today Oh, some of you may be familiar with the name and some slight details of the story it's also possible the story is new to you my oh. main sources are the boston globe on newspapers.com The book Marathon Woman by Katherine Switzer and the documentary Boston Marathon. For any others, I'll credit them in the narrative. Most of it's from the Boston Globe. Rosie Vivas died July 8th, 2019 at the age of 66 in West Palm Beach, Florida. Her death went largely unnoticed except by family and friends. Rosie had been battling cancer for 10 years, the obit said, but she was able to celebrate her last birthday with her loving family on June 21st, 2019. Quote, her family and friends made sure to surround her with love and celebrate one of her last birthdays on earth the best way we knew how. They gave her a surprise party. Rosie was a woman that showed everyone she cared for them by giving love and affection. All she wanted in life was to always be surrounded by her loved ones. She had a huge heart and was willing to share it with the world, her obituary said. She was survived by her partner, Margarita Alvarez, her three sons, Francisco, Ronaldo, and Gilberto, and their families, and her brother, Robert Ruiz, and his family. A month after her death, with the obituary online, a runner's website made the connection. Rosie Vivas? Rosie Ruiz? The internet went nuts, relatively. Many people complained that she didn't mention the Boston Marathon in her obituary, but why would she? Listen along and see what you think. April 21st, 1980 was a bright sunny day in Massachusetts, the temperature unexpectedly rising to the mid-70s by noon when the starting gun went off in Hopkinton, Massachusetts to start the 84th running of the Boston Marathon. The 26.2-mile race brought runners through eight towns and cities into the heart of Boston, where they finished in front of the Prudential Center. The Boston Marathon is run on Patriots Day, a holiday only in Massachusetts and Maine, commemorating the first battle of the Revolutionary War on April 19, 1775 in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. We won, by the way. Spoiler. The holiday used to always be on April 19th. Until 1969, when most federal holidays were moved to Mondays, and Massachusetts and Maine followed suit and changed Patriots' Day to the third Monday in April. But whether on April 19th or the third Monday in April, the Boston Marathon has always been run on Patriots' Day every year since 1897, except in 1918 when it was an armed forces relay, and 2020, the only time it was ever canceled, and 2021 when it was held in October rather than April. In 1980, women had only been officially allowed to run for eight years. More on that later. Mm. And they were still treated like second-class citizens, which had a lot to do with the brouhaha that happened that year. Nowadays, there's a separate women's start for the race so that the female champion has a chance to cross the finish line on her own without being in a crowd of men. Back then, that wasn't the case. The elite female runners ended up among a bunch of guys, and while spotters at checkpoints along the course made sure that the officials at the finish line were apprised of who was leading the men's race, which they saw as the leader of the race itself, no one bothered to let them know who was leading the women's race, and they didn't know until the winning woman crossed the finish line. Ah. A convoy with a press bus, photographers on a flatbed truck, and more rolled ahead of the male leader. In 1980, for the first time ever, WBZ-TV had sprung for a rolling spotter for the female leader, former marathon great Catherine Switzer, and a photographer who were in an electric golf cart. Switzer in her golf cart had been rolling ahead of Jacqueline Garreau of Montreal for the last half of the race. The woman's pre-race favorite had been local girl, Patty Lyons, of West Roxbury, Mass., but she was well behind Garo, who had taken the lead at the halfway point and held it until the end. Or, so everyone thought. (laughs) (laughs) So much foreshadowing. As Switzer's golf court veered off with two miles left to go, the battery was dying. She held up a finger to Garo, indicating that she was the first-place woman. But up ahead, at the finish line, a totally different woman was on her way to crossing, more than two minutes ahead of Garo. Rosie Ruiz, wearing the number 50W, arms flailing in seeming exhaustion, broke the (laughs) ribbon before collapsing into the arms of two Boston cops. A photographer took a series of photos showing her collapsing and then raising a shaky arm in victory. Ruiz's time of two hours and 31 minutes broke Joan Benoit's Boston Marathon Mm. record of the year before by more than two minutes and made Ruiz one of the top three fastest female marathoners in the world at the time, joining Joan Benoit and Greta Waits. Ruiz was crowned by Massachusetts Governor Ed King with a traditional laurel wreath, which is specially made of olive branches imported from Marathon in Greece, just to show how seriously they take this That's pretty cool. Then King put the special winner's medal around her neck. Everyone who finishes the Boston Marathon gets a medal. And I was going to wear my four in honor of this, but I didn't have time to go dig them out. And that would have been kind of cheesy anyway. You mean you don't have them displayed prominently? I, I used to. The winner gets a very special medal. Ruiz was ushered into the bowels of the Prudential Center underground parking garage, where they had the post-race press conference, and she was seated next to men's winner Bill Rogers, who had just won his third straight Boston Marathon and fourth overall. Watching video of that moment, even if you had no knowledge of what would unfold over the coming days, it's obvious Rogers is perplexed. He later said he was thinking at the moment that he didn't recognize her The running community at the time was small and tight. Everyone knew who the top runners were. He also couldn't figure out why Ruiz didn't look the way people usually did when they finished a marathon, particularly on such a warm day. Ruiz was wearing a short-sleeved shirt, unlike the sleeveless singlets that most top runners wear. It was heavy cotton with sleeves that came almost to her elbows. Notably, it was almost completely dry except for a wet spot on the front. There was no sweat, no sweat stains. Her face wasn't flushed. There weren't the telltale lines of salt that even slow runners get on a long hot day. Uh. Nothing. Rogers thought there was something fishy. Catherine Switzer was also perplexed. How would she miss the leading female runner? She'd been on the course monitoring the top women's field and hadn't seen Ruiz the entire length of the marathon. She'd never heard of her and as a pioneer of female marathon running, which hadn't been around very long, Switzer pretty much knew who all the runners were, particularly, and she felt she should particularly know the one who had just clocked the third fastest time ever for a woman. Mm -hmm. Lots of other people had questions too. It had reached shitstorm status within hours. In a TV interview Ruiz and Rogers had with Boston's Channel 5 the next morning before she went back to her home in New York City, Ruiz repeated a refrain that would become her mantra over the days, weeks, and years that followed. She ran the race. She hadn't expected to win, but she ran the race. And I have the pains to prove it, she said. The microphone moved to Bill Rogers, he said in his typical kind of goofy Bill Rogers way. I like Rosie. I think she's a great kid and everything, but I, uh, at least in my experience, it's not possible. And Bill Rogers, as we all know, was right. Spoiler! I didn't know that. The elements that allowed Ruiz to cross the finish line the way she did, and then for it to become such a big deal... So much so that she's still an icon for cheating and fakery to this day. The vitriol is deep and unforgiving now as it was then. And if you don't believe me, just type her name into a YouTube search Mm -hmm. where most of the titles have an all capitals cheat and like biggest cheater ever and all that kind of Mm. thing. To understand how that all happened, you need to understand the Boston Marathon and its place in New England and running culture. The modern marathon traces its roots back to 490 BC when Pheidippides, a courier who had earlier run about 300 miles in a week to request help from Sparta when the Persians landed in Marathon Greece to fight the Athenians, ran the 25 miles from Marathon to Athens to announce the Greek victory. He delivered the news, hail, we are the victors. Then he dropped dead. Ah. This, of course, became a legendary heroic story in Greece. Ooh. And in 1896, when the first modern Olympics were held in Athens, the Greeks created a race, the Marathon, to commemorate the moment. Runners ran from Marathon to Athens, about 25 miles. Members of the Boston Athletic Association who were at the Olympics thought the race was pretty cool. So when they got back to Boston, they created the Boston Marathon with the first one run in the spring of 1897 with 25 runners. It was almost the exact same route as it is today, though the start line at the time was in Ashland. When marathons officially became 26.2 miles, the original Boston Marathon was about 25, the start was moved west to Hopkinton. The finish line has been adjusted a few times, too. In 1980, when Ruiz finished, it was in front of the Prudential Center. A few years later, when John Hancock Financial Services became the sponsor, the finish line was adjusted, so the race finished on Boylston Street, a few blocks away, in front of John Hancock, of the course, big John Hancock building. I'm not sure when I first heard of the Boston Marathon, but my perception of it was shaped not by the news of who won every year, but from the movie, See How She Runs. <laughs> I was thinking about that movie. With Joanne Woodward, which appeared on TV in 1978. In the movie, Woodward played a working single mother, a teacher in a Boston high school, not a middle-aged housewife, as many descriptions of the movie give it, and she decides to run the Boston Marathon. My biggest memory of the movie was always been her running in the darkness hours after the winners crossed the finish line, dodging traffic as she hobbles down Boston streets, exhausted and in pain, but determined to finish. And we'll talk more about the movie, which I watched again on YouTube. Oh, you did? Well, I was researching this episode and it (laughs) actually held up very well. Nowadays, there are several ways to be an official runner in the Boston Marathon. The first is to qualify by running a certain time in another marathon, one that is certified by the Boston Athletic Association, meaning that it meets a lot of standards, including the distance of the course be measured a certain way and a lot of other little rules that make it a qualifier. The qualifying times are different depending on age and gender, with men between 18 and 34 required to run a qualifier in three hours, women that age required to run one in three hours and 30 minutes. The older you get, the slower you can go. And if you're over 80, the qualifying time is four hours and 50 minutes for men and five hours and 20 minutes for women, I still which is about like what that. I ran my first Boston Marathon in. So many people qualify now that even running a qualifying time is no guarantee you'll get a spot. Boston, the nation's first and longest running marathon, actually was the impetus for the marathon movement. Once Boston qualifying standards were created in 1977, marathons sprouted up all over the country, and now the world touted as Boston qualifiers. BQ is people in the (laughs) room. Another way to be an official runner is to run for a charity. Between 2,500 and 3,000 charity runners get official bibs. You have to raise money, which is how I ran the Boston Marathon four times between 2005 and 2008. At the time, my first one had raised $2,500 and it went up every year. I got to tell you, as hard as it is to train, through the winter in northern New England and then run a marathon in April, it is much harder to get money out of people. The first year, people were like, oh, yeah, because it was such a novelty. And by the fourth year, nobody wanted to give me any friggin' money. And Aww. that's why I stopped doing it. The charity runners are looked at often with derision by the real runners and even by people who don't run. Lots of people think they don't deserve to be there. They're not serious runners. They're taking the spot of people who qualified but couldn't get in and all this shit. But in 2022, they raised $35.6 million for charity. The biggest team, I think, is the Dana-Farber Cancer one. I used to run for the American Liver Foundation. Also, I always felt as a charity runner... How does my finish two hours after you cross the finish line diminish your race? I could never figure that out. I'm not in your way. I know. At the marathon, now at the starting line, they put people in corrals. And it's an order of, your numbers are an order of, your speed if you qualified and then all the charity yep. runners are behind them. So we're not getting in anybody's way. Yeah. I always felt like it was two different races I'd run and it was fun and I enjoyed it and all this stuff. And I come home and watch the highlights on TV of the winners and stuff. And it was like two, yeah. two different races. But the one big untold secret that nobody ever talks about is there are also thousands of runners who didn't qualify and didn't run for charities. John Hancock, the sponsor, this is their last year sponsoring got bibs to give out as they saw fit to either clients or employees wow many of the running clubs in new england get a few bibs to hand out to their members as they see fit all of the first responders and town and city offices in the eight towns that the marathon goes through, kept bibs and oh, stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, these people are never talked about. These free numbers are never, ever, ever spoken yeah. of or talked about. And you can't even find out about them online. But if you run the marathon, you find out about them. That's and I just feel as a charity runner taking those hits, it's kind of interesting that these people. Another way to run that's not as common anymore is as a bandit which has always been the name for the unofficial runners, the people who haven't registered, who just jump in and run. This used to be a big thing. The more they've tightened up restrictions and checkpoints and electronic racing where you wear a chip, the harder it is to do it. But it used to be a huge thing. And in 1996, the 100th running, they let people do it. Oh, interesting. But then it was like, okay, this is the last year. But back in the old days, when everything was still no tech or anything like that, there were many bandits, and they usually started behind the runners, and again, didn't get in people's way, but it was something that people always had an issue with.
1: Um, well, when you think about it, I mean, you're basically just running down this, a public exactly. street. Right, you are running so, down. So, right. yeah, you know, they don't own it.
0: Exactly, but... The fact that they feel they own it and it's held in such holy esteem like so many things in Boston are, we'll talk about that in a minute, that is one of the problems. Generally, nowadays, about 30,000 people officially run the Boston Marathon. Before 1967, there were no qualifying times. Starting in 1967, in a decision made after the race, for reasons we'll talk about in a few minutes, race officials determined that anyone who'd finished after four hours was not an official finisher and technically disqualified. The next year, they changed that to three hours and 30 minutes. In 1970, because they were getting some flack for an arbitrary decision based largely on the fact that women wanted to run the race they put on the entry forms quote a runner must submit the certification of either the long distance running chairman of the amateur athletics union of his district or his college coach that he has trained sufficiently to finish the course in less than huh. 4 hours this is not a jogging race unquote oh. To show just how provincial the race was back then, the $3 entry fee had to be paid in cash, no checks or anything else. You had to include the $3 when you sent in your entry form. They kept changing the qualifying times the next few years. 1972 was the first year they allowed women in the race. At that time, you had to run a Boston or other sanctioned marathon within three hours and 30 minutes, and then they had some shorter races, 20k, at 15 miles, 20 miles, but they didn't split it up by gender. The official rationale for the constant changes to qualifying times was that any more than a thousand runners would make the marathon difficult to manage in the eight towns <sighs> and cities it went through. Hmm. They allowed times for shorter races because there were so few marathons at the time, and officially women weren't even allowed to run races of more than two miles, according to the Mm -hmm. Amateur Athletic Union. The qualifying standards were not adjusted for gender. So aside from the official reasons, one of the main reasons they had those times was to keep the rising tide of women who wanted to run the marathon out of it. In 1977, they got rid of the shorter race provisions, and you had to run a qualifying marathon. That's largely because in 1976, 141 women had run up from 42 the year before. Mm, Gotta keep them out. It was giving the race organizers conniptions. The women had been officially allowed in in 1972. They really still didn't want them there. For the 1977 race, they changed the qualifying times to marathon only to three hours for men. 3.05 3.05 for women and 3.30 for men over 40 called masters. There was no female masters provision. Hmm. At the time, very few women had run a sub three-hour marathon, so 3.05 was a little ridiculous. By this time, the Boston Athletic Association had figured out they could coordinate with the cities and towns along the route and allow more runners on the course, and interest grew. Of course, the dollar signs of allowing more to not hurt But that still wasn't making it easy for women while all this qualifying talk may seem pointless to the topic of the episode the difficulty of particularly women getting into the marathon and how people felt about it is a huge factor to what happened with rosie ruiz first boston people who aren't familiar with the city may not realize how very very provincial it can be as we said a few minutes ago it's history and culture is everything Things like the Marathon, Fenway Park, the South Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade, and other cultural and social fixtures are often called sacred or sacrosanct. They don't like change, and they don't like people messing with things. This is often based in sexism, racism, and more, but that's the way Boston is, though it's not nearly as rigid as it once was. Just as important, as I said, in 1980, When 449 women lined up with the nearly 5,000 men at the starting line of the Boston Marathon, they'd only been officially allowed to do it for eight years. Women at the time were still fighting to get the marathon into the Olympics. The longest Olympic distance women could run was 1,500 meters, which is just a little less than a mile. That was only since 1972. Before that, it was 800 meters or a half mile. In 1980, the fight to get a 3,000 meter race for women was going nowhere, even as the fight to include a women's marathon raged on. There were a lot of crazy reasons given for why women couldn't run longer races. Mm-hmm. The biggest reasons revolved around that center of fear and mystery for men, the uterus. Yeah. It was feared the uterus would either be damaged or fall out from all that jiggling, that running, that distant causes. Isn't it funny how even today men are so focused on what happens to our uteruses? Unless, of course, it's making sure their own sperm doesn't get into one, then it somehow isn't their problem. And also, <sighs> it's, the most, it's the most protected organ in the body. But as far as running affecting it, women have been trying to prove for more than a century and possibly longer that it wasn't a concern. In the first modern Olympics in 1896 in Athens, a month before the Games, Stamatis Rathithi, a woman, ran the Olympic course from Marathon to Athens. Another woman, Mel Pomeni, tried to enter the actual event during the Olympics, but of course the officials were having none of that. They didn't have any events for women, and they sure as heck weren't going to let one run the marathon with the guys. But still, she persisted. Mel Pomeni warmed up for the race where no one could see her. When the race started, she ran alongside the course, eventually joining in behind the men. (sighs) Eventually, she began passing runners who dropped out. She arrived at the stadium about an hour and a half after Spiridon Lewis, the winner, won. They wouldn't let her into the now-empty stadium, so she ran her final lap around the outside of the building, finishing in approximately four and a half hours. Nice. The first woman to get an official time in a marathon was Violet Percy of England, who ran a three-hour, 40-minute, 22-second race there in 1926. The next known one was in a nine- pretty good time. Yeah, the next known one was in 1963 when American Mary Lepper ran a marathon in three thirty seven oh seven. It's possible a woman had run the Boston Marathon before Bobby Gibb's unofficial run in 1966, but if someone did, no one recorded it for history. In 1966, Gibb applied to enter, but got a letter back saying women weren't physiologically able to run a marathon. Gibb, who was, I think, 19 at the time, had been running since she was a young girl, even though people thought she was crazy because back then people just didn't go running. Girls?
1: What's a girl running for? And
0: she knew for sure she could run a marathon. Later, Will Cloney, director of the Boston Marathon from 1972 to 1983, told a TV reporter they couldn't do anything about letting Mm. women in because the AAU didn't allow women to run the marathon. But he said, as the reporter smiled and nodded sagely, there isn't any other sport where women compete against men. And with a little laugh of derision, he said, and we can't cope with it one way or another. So that's about it. Like, and I'm like, what is there to cope with? You just let him run in the marathon. Mm-hmm. Gib, who was from the Boston area, but living in San Diego, even though she was told she couldn't run, took a three-day Greyhound bus trip back to Massachusetts, getting there the day before the marathon. When she got home, she told her parents she was going to run the marathon. Her parents thought she was nuts she said her father went slamming out of the house oh geez but she convinced her mother to drive her to the start at hopkinton that's something you can't do these days she hid behind a forsythia bush as close to the start line as she could get where she wouldn't be seen and as the pack of guys ran by there were 540 runners that year she jumped in about halfway No one tried to stop her, and in fact, a radio station that noticed her began to monitor her progress, and in that Boston Marathon documentary, it shows video of her running along the course. She took a taxi home after her finish. She finished, I forgot to write it down, but I think it was 337-something. Nice. And her father, so unhappy about it the day before, was extremely proud as he funded phone calls from his pals congratulating him. The next day, the front page of one of Boston's tabloid newspapers had a giant headline, Hub Bride, First Gal to Run Marathon. (laughs) Gibb later pointed out it was a pivotal moment. She said, women themselves didn't know they could do these things because they were never allowed to try. When they saw a woman doing it, they said, oh, we can run a marathon and our uterus remains intact. Her success inspired Catherine Switzer, at the time a Mm. sophomore at Syracuse University. Switzer had been running with the assistant men's coach, Arnie Briggs, because there was no woman's track team, but she liked to run and was looking for a way to work out. Arnie would regale her with stories of the 15 Boston marathons he'd run. One day she was in a bad mood and said something to him like, let's stop talking about it and just run it. He agreed. As a track coach at Syracuse he got a number of entry forms he could use she sent in her entry form and signed it K V Switzer male sports writers to this day claim she did it as a trick so that they wouldn't know she was female but actually that's how she always signed her name from the time she was on her high school newspaper when they kept changing it because her father when he filled out her birth certificate forgot to put in the E between the h and the r so it's spelled katherine with no e and people kept changing it misspelling it so she started using her initials kv switzer back then people also had to get a physical from a doctor proving they could run the distance so she went to the syracuse university doctor and he signed the medical form and he put her name as Kathy Switzer. So obviously she wasn't trying to hide anything. Switzer, her coach Arnie, a college running friend, John Leonard, and Switzer's boyfriend, who is a real dick, but that's a story for a different day. Um, Tom, <laughs> Tom Miller all went to Boston for the race. It was a cold, rainy day. So she had a big sweatshirt on over the running sweatshirt she was wearing And her number was on the sweatshirt underneath before the race. That's another sign people still say that she was trying to be deceptive by wearing a big bulky sweatshirt to disguise herself, but it was 33 degrees out with freezing rain and she was cold. When they got in line for the race, they had to show their number. She lifted up the big sweatshirt and showed Will Cloney himself, the director of the race, her number, 261. He checked her off, obviously not noticing her breasts. So that was fine. The race started with no issues. She said the guys running around her were welcoming and not unhappy she was there or anything. Um, She had taken off the big sweatshirt to run because your number has to show. The press bus and flatbed truck, flatbed truck with the cameras back then always started after the runners and then came up the street and passed them a few miles into the race around the four mile mark as the press bus passed one of the reporters noticed switzer he yelled to jock semple the other race director who was a very bad tempered scottish guy who thought he owned the race the reporter yelled hey Jack! did you know there's a girl running in your race the bus screeched to a halt and semple and will cloney the directors jumped off Cloney tried to grab Switzer, but all he had succeeded in was pulling the glove off her hand. Then Switzer heard someone yelling behind her and turned around and said she saw a face that was the angriest face she had ever seen uh. in her life. That was Jack Semple. He grabbed her by the shoulders and spun her around. She, Arnie, John, and Tom, and all the runners around them were still running as this was going on. He yelled, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. Arnie Briggs, her coach who knew Semple and used to run with him, and was a very mild-mannered guy, was yelling at him, Jack, I know her, she's with me, she's okay. But Semple didn't care and wasn't listening. Semple tried to grab her and miss, then tried again and grabbed her sweatshirt. Then Switzerland's boyfriend, Tom Miller, who was over six feet tall and 235 pounds, was an All-America football player in high school and now was an Olympic-level hammer thrower, gave Semple a shoulder block and knocked him off the course. Nice. And there's a fairly famous sequence of photos that you can see if you look this up. I have
1: seen the photo.
0: Switzer was humiliated and embarrassed. She turned to Arnie Briggs and said, I have to finish this race even if it's on my hands and knees. She knew if she didn't, people would just think she was a gimmick and a joke. It would set back any chance women ever had of doing it.
1: Exactly.
0: She did finish in four hours and 20 minutes. She normally would have run faster, but the simple incident had them (sighs) like they ran too fast for a few miles because they thought people were coming after them until they calmed down. So they used up some of their after the race for the first time ever, race directors announced that anyone who finished after four hours didn't qualify and Boston qualifying standards were first enacted. And they were enacted largely, as I said, as a measure to disqualify a woman who had run officially, and they couldn't disqualify her any other way, although it seems people aren't aware of that's why Boston qualifying standards were first enacted. I
1: didn't know. I just thought it was to keep the...
0: Well, now nowadays, it, yeah, it but... is. I mean, it became that, yeah. but that's why they first did wow. it. Yeah. Yeah. You may read Switzer was disqualified from that race, but that's actually what had happened. Everybody finished four hours. Roberta Gibb, with much less fanfare, ran that race as well as in 1968 the same way she had in 1966 without a number and jumping in from the bushes and nobody it. Bot- right. And nobody bothered her. Semple would later say he was mad because he thought she got the number fraudulently and was running as a gimmick. The whole female running as a gimmick thing persisted anytime a woman wanted to run the race. I guess they just couldn't believe a woman would seriously oh, want to run a marathon. She. And
1: you know, that picture shows up online all the time. I've always struck by the fact that it's a fucking race. It's not a life or death thing. Right. And this guy is physically attacking a, a, another a woman. Person.
0: Yes. And I can actually remember... Seeing that photo in either Time or Newsweek around the time, obviously I was six, I wasn't reading Time or Newsweek, but you know how dad would always read it and like leave it open yeah. to where he was reading and I was always struck by that photo. I can't tell you what I was thinking when I saw it, but it made a big impression on me basically here's somebody attacking a woman because she's running i don't understand i don't understand (laughs) one thing that makes this incident similar to the rosie ruiz one 23 years later is it would have an impact that the guys didn't count on it would galvanize women and make many more of them want to run simply because a woman running a race made news that wasn't just on the sports page and women looked at it and said oh women can run yeah we can go out and run As I said, Boston finally let women run five years later in 1972, although they still didn't make it easy. That Boston Marathon documentary that came out in 2014 showed Semple later saying that he became the most notorious male chauvinist in the United States. But he too said it ended up being good as it got more women running. And it ended up opening the Boston Marathon to women. Although he says it took us five years to work on it. And I'm like... How Why? did? How does it take five years? To work I know
1: that? it's like here you can run. Here's every time they want to include women in everything. Oh, well, it's going to oh, take so, time. Right. What Whoa. the documentary,
0: which was bankrolled by John Hancock, doesn't tell you John is that Hancock. they Sorry. the financial services Maybe. the marathon. i know i'm
1: joking sorry
0: what it doesn't tell you is that they weren't working on it for those five years but resisting it including in 1968 the year after switzer ran lowering the qualifying time the time you had to cross the finish line to three hours and 30 minutes Hmm. insisting on one hand that there wasn't enough interest among women to make the effort to allow them in but on the other hand saying adding women would put too much of a strain on the resources in the course. But finally, in 1972, women were in. The women, who at the time had a red F on their bibs in front of their numbers, which was changed a few years later to a black W, and that's so actually the spotters and the checkers. Yeah, yeah, that makes be for sense. Before electronic timing. The women had to line up in single file at the edge of the men's field. You know, the men were spread across the road the woman with the best qualifying time got to be first and the others had to line up behind her in (laughs) order of time. By 1980, the qualifying standards were changed to two hours and 50 minutes for men under 40, three hours and 10 minutes for men over 40, and three hours and 20 minutes for all women. Hmm. Aside from the women running issue, the Boston Marathon was at a major crossroads in 1980, though even those in charge of it really didn't totally recognize that other races were finding ways to offer prize money to attract world-class runners while also get sponsorships to help pay expenses and we're offering travel expenses to pay for accommodations and more for the top runners the aau's iron grip on amateur sports you could even be kicked out of the aau for just running in a race where somebody else got free shoes from somebody and then you couldn't you couldn't be in the Olympics or whatever. Um, that had been loosened in 1978 by the creation of the U.S. Olympic Committee, which took over U.S. Olympic operations and shoved the AAU out. Boston was still resistant to having anything but a purely amateur event, even though those standards were loosening up. Boston also didn't want to modernize by having electronic timing, mile Mm. markers, official water stations, better checkpoints, and all the other things that runners liked and that make races more efficient. They said it would ruin the sanctity and the tradition of the race. This would come back to bite them in 1980 if Rosie Ruiz crossed (laughs) the finish line but it was also biting them before they refused to admit that competitive runners now had a lot more choices. And while Boston was still the premier legendary marathon of the world, it was beginning to tarnish a little. The best racers were opting for other races so that they could get prize money and travel accommodations and stuff. The people who just ran for fun were opting for ones that had timers, mile markers, and the other kinds of things that makes it easier to run a race. Boston was so backwards that as late as the late 1970s at the finish line, they still had spotters who'd write down the number of runners who crossed and their time. This was okay for the first fastest people who went across, but when the big group started Mm. to come across, they had to stop people and let them cross a few at a time so they could write down their time and number, which A, made people's times longer, and B, the one thing you're thinking about the whole fucking 26 miles is crossing that finish, running across that finish line, and to take that away from people bummed them out. By January 2nd, 1980, about 2,500 runners had written to the Boston Athletic Association asking for an entry form. And that was the day the BEA began mailing forms out for the year. A story that morning in the Boston Globe gave an address to mail requests to and reminded those writing to include a stamped self-address envelope so the BEA could send the form. And I was trying to think, when's the last time I included a stamped self-addressed envelope. I'm trying
1: to think of the last time. No. I don't even
0: know. No. Greta Waits, the great Norwegian runner, had just three months before finished the New York Marathon in 22733, whoa, breaking her own world record. In 1972, someone had asked Catherine Switzer, who by then became a world-class runner and advocate for women's running and marathons, if women would ever break the 230 mark. Oh, she said it would happen within a decade. Cherry Nason, a Boston Globe sports writer who was in the room at the time, screamed impossible and seemed really pissed off about it. Yet here was Greta Waits doing it seven years later. Joe Concannon of the Boston Globe in the January 2nd article also mentions a name I bet you've never heard, Oscar Miranda. And what should have been a lesson that spurred some changes, but as with everything else to do with the Boston Marathon in that era, didn't. Miranda, 53, had been at the center of a scandal After the 1979 Pasta Marathon, put a pin in this story as some details will later seem familiar. Miranda of Tampa, Florida, crossed the Boston Marathon finish line with a time of two hours and 16 minutes, making him the Masters, that's the over 40, winner, and putting wow. him just seven minutes behind Bill Rogers, two hours, nine minutes, and 27 seconds, a course record. But a few days later, the BAA announced it was withholding Miranda's prize, and <laughs> investigating whether he ran the whole race. He was officially 22nd, But he was the first master, nearly 25 minutes ahead of any other over 40 male. He was not accounted for at any of the eight checkpoints where they had people who checked off the numbers of the top runners who went by them. Miranda, an engineer for WFLA-TV in Tampa, Florida, was incensed, telling The Globe, which had called him at home in Tampa to get a comment, It hasn't set me greatly. It makes it hard for me to do my work. I ran the entire route as prescribed. I can't believe this. (laughs) By then, there were enough runners in the race that it took the ones near the back a few minutes to cross the start line. Again, this was the days before the electronic chip where you run across a mat and it it. Yeah. Like when I ran it, it was like 15 or 20 minutes to get to the start line. I've got. So Ray Fitzgerald, a Boston Globe columnist, pointed out that since Miranda said it took him about four minutes to cross the start line, his actual time would be about 213 or 212, putting him at the time with the best runners in the world. The Hmm. record at the time by a 53-year-old was 2 hours and 31 minutes and 56 seconds. Miranda told race officials that his previous best was 240, and they said even if that was true, the likelihood of him improving the amount he had running 5 minute, 13 second miles the entire course. That's pretty friggin' fast. Virtually impossible. The BAA couldn't find anyone who saw him on the course, despite the fact he was wearing a distinctive red and black stocking cap. Miranda said he was cold and wore a jersey for most of his race that covered his number, which was against race rules for this very reason, and that's why the checkpoints hadn't picked him up. He said he threw away the jersey around Kenmore Square about a mile before the finish line, but after the last checkpoint. He insisted he ran the entire distance, every inch of it. After the race, he said... He was cold and tired, so he immediately got his car out of the Prudential Center garage and drove back to his hotel room in Waltham. A little while later, he went back to the finish line to buy some souvenirs, and he heard his name being paged. When he went to talk to the race officials and find out what they wanted, they confronted him with the fact that they didn't think he ran the course. He said he was considering a defamation lawsuit. Oh,
1: please.
0: But then he capitulated a little and said whatever Will Cloney, the race director, decided he'd go with, quote, but I swear I ran the whole race, unquote. The sports director of the TV station Miranda worked for, Randy Scott, said, anyone who knows Oscar knows he doesn't have a dishonest bone in his body. Uh. Down here, they all feel he got a raw deal. A week later, the BAA disqualified him because he wasn't spotted at any of the checkpoints. There should have been some photographic evidence of him running, too, even if his number wasn't showing, And given his stocking cap, he would have stuck out. Joe Kincannon of the Globe later wrote that the Tampa newspaper sent a reporter to Boston to view 18 hours of race film, and the reporter couldn't find him in Uh any of the film. Miranda claimed that he had passed a polygraph in Florida, and his attorney, Edward Rude, said he planned to contact the BAA officials about that. Miranda told the Globe, I'm concerned with defending my name, my family, and my honor. I just Mm. wanted to have fun in the race. Too bad it turned out this way. Mm -hmm. Will Cloney, the race director, said they'd asked Miranda for some verification that he ran, but hadn't gotten anything. Cloney said he'd never talked to Miranda at all, actually. Polygrapher, no, it appears that was the end of it. The only references I could find afterwards were people mentioning the whole thing, but not that Miranda filed a lawsuit, took any action, or ever came up with any proof. By early 1980, he was just a footnote. Hmm. The big news winter and early spring of 1980, dominating both sports and news headlines, was talk about whether the U.S. would boycott the Summer Olympics, which were being held in Moscow that year. The Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan in December Hmm. and staged a coup installing Bob Rock Carmel, who was a pal of the Soviet government, as prime minister. President Jimmy Carter was pushing for the boycott believing that the U.S. participating in the Olympics in Moscow would show approval of the Soviet Union's actions. Olympic athletes, of course, didn't want to boycott. One who was very vocal about it was Bill Rogers, who'd won the Boston Marathon two years in a row, as I said, setting a record in 1979. But he was planning to run in the Olympics, and the Olympic trials were in May A couple weeks after Boston, so he wasn't going to run Boston. Many other marathoners were planning to run in the Olympic trials as well. But by late March, it was clear the U.S. would boycott the Olympics and many other countries would follow. The good news for Boston was that there were a lot of good runners who had been training for a race that wasn't going to happen. And some of them would come run in Boston. Rogers announced he'd be back to defend his title. He would. As the March 21st entry deadline approached, the marathon had received more than 5,000 requests for entry forms down from the previous year's record of nearly 8,000 runners, but still a decent field, but much lower and all those problems I mentioned before, you know, not the Olympics because only a handful of people were going to do that, but all those problems I mentioned before were having an impact on the race. The other big news was that the race was gonna stop serving its traditional beef stew to finishers and instead offer yogurt, bananas, and drinks with electrolytes oh. after the race. The beef stew, I think it was originally homemade when it first started more than 50 years before, but had devolved to dinty more canned stew. No one was clear how the tradition started. In typical Boston fashion, many people who weren't runners lamented that it was another unwelcome change ruining the tradition of the Boston Marathon. But all the runners who were asked, and many I've heard mention it over the years, said the stew made them sick. It was the worst worst thing to have after a race, especially on a hot day, and they were all happy to see it go. Nobody wanted to eat that fucking stew. That's about the last thing I'd want. I'd want a big
1: thing of water.
0: My guess is sometime back in the olden days on a cold, snowy, wet marathon day, somebody said, you know what, let's cook up some beef stew and give these kids some stew. To warm them up and then it just became a tradition. In the April 20th, 1980 Boston Globe, two days before the marathon, runners' names were listed on two full pages in small print. Of the 5,417 registered runners, 449 were women. Number W50 was Rosie Ruiz of New York City. Rosie Ruiz was born June 21st, 1953, in Havana, Cuba. Her mother, she and her siblings immigrated to Florida in 1961 to escape the political situation there, as so many Cubans did. Her father stayed in Cuba, she said, as a political prisoner, and she never saw him again. The circumstances aren't clear, but as a child, she was separated from her mother and lived with cousins, aunts, and uncles in Hollywood, Florida as she grew up. She studied piano as a child and at 16 began to teach piano, which she did to make money during her years at South Broward High School in Hollywood, Florida. She became an American citizen in 1972 at the age of 18. She got a Bachelor of Arts degree, according to her obit, in music from Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska, graduating in 1977. She said that while there, she injured her knee playing touch football and had to have surgery. After graduation, she moved to New York City and reveled in the fast-paced city life. In 1978, she started running in Central Park as a way to get her knee strength back after her surgery. By April 1980, Ruiz was a 26-year-old administrative assistant for a company called Metal Traders Corp. in New York City, making $17,000 a year which, believe it or not, was considered good money back then. Mm-hmm. It would be equivalent to making $79,000 a year now, but I think it was also cheaper to live in New York City. Yeah. Like, seventy nine dollars a year probably wouldn't go very far now. No. But Things what change. she made, she had a nice apartment. She lived on the 34th floor of a fairly expensive west side high-rise. The New York Marathon was her first recorded race, and she was listed as finishing at 2.56.31 easily beating the Boston qualifying time for women of 320. The company she worked for was so excited that she had qualified for Boston, they paid her way Wow! and paid for a room in the Sheraton the night before the race. When Joe Cannon, running writer for the Boston Globe, picked his top five female finishers, he obviously didn't include Ruiz. He didn't include Jacqueline Garreau, an emerging talent who most recently ran a 239 in a marathon. Jerry Nason, the Globe writer who'd gotten mad at Catherine Switzer eight years before when she said women would be running faster than two hours and 30 minutes before the end of the decade, ignored the women altogether and just made his top 10 picks. As a former sports editor and reader of sports pages all my life, it always annoys me when they make picks on things i know it's like what's the point why don't you just write about the news and this i think they they paid so little attention to women's running well nason didn't pick anybody at all but joe concanon who was a pretty good running writer just picked the women they knew nobody looked and said wow jacqueline garrow ran in 239 She, she could do very well here in boston so, as I said at the beginning, it was a surprise to everyone when Rosie Ruiz, arms flapping around in seeming exhaustion, broke the tape at the finish line and collapsed into the arms of two Boston policemen. Her face twisted in agony, hmm. the pain of running 26 miles.
1: Yeah,
0: Ruiz was crowned with the traditional laurel wreath by Massachusetts Governor Ed King who then put the winner's medal around her neck. She was ushered into the Prudential Center parking garage to join men's champ Bill Rogers at the table at the Finisher's News Conference. It was a big day for Rogers. He tied the legendary Clarence DeMar's course record for three wins in a row, and as a four-time champion, was tied for second behind DeMar, who won seven Boston Marathons. Ruiz seemed fully recovered from her exhaustion. She was buoyant, fresh-faced, and not covered with sweat and all the other gross stuff you get when running a marathon, especially on a hot day. Mm. She was very specific about the race she had run. She said she was shooting for a 240 and remembers passing Jacqueline Gurrow at around the nine mile mark, but then dropped back. I felt like at the 13th or 14th mile, I was going to collapse, she said. She said, though, she then surged around mile 15. I believe I started breaking through around there. I'm not quite sure. She said she caught, then passed Garou and ran with a group of men to the finish. A finish, by the way, that broke the women's record for the course and put her among the fastest three women in the world at the time. Ruiz said, I just wanted to finish. I didn't know I was the first woman until I crossed the finish line. To be sincere, this is a dream. Ah. Mm. Nowadays, when you run the race, as I said earlier, you have an electronic chip attached to your shoe that records your time crossing the start and at checkpoints every 5K, it's a 40K race, so you get a 5K is 3.1 miles, so you're constantly checked. If you miss a few, you may be disqualified. They make that very clear to you. Back then, they had human checkpoints, as I said, 10 along the course, people whose job it was to spot the front runners in the crowd and record their time and number. In recent years, as the race had become more crowded, this job became more difficult. On top of it, they were instructed to check off only the first 100 runners, which did a disservice to the top women. Sometimes runners were missed, but not at every checkpoint. Yet none of them, none of the checkers, had seen W50 Rosie Ruiz. Hmm. The controversy about Ruiz's finish began seconds after she broke the finisher's tape. I really didn't expect to win, she said. I bet she didn't. I know, that part was likely true. I came across in 231, and I guess that's true, technically. As people became more critical, her refrain became, I know I ran the course, I did the best I can, what else can I say? As I said, it would have been hard for Reese to have slipped through the cracks on the course. Not just because of the checkpoints, but because of the hyper-aware crowd. Particularly back then, when men outnumbered the women more than 10 to 1, and women who were running up with the fastest men got noticed. Jacqueline Gareau, who came to the race from Montreal, according to all accounts, was clearly the first woman at Wellesley College, which is mile 14. She reached the 20-mile mark at an hour, 56 minutes, and 50 seconds, and the remaining 6.2 miles was cheered by the crowd as the first woman. I supposed I was first, Gareau said after the race. Then I arrived at the line, and Don Winant, who was running near Gero the entire second half of the race, told the Boston Globe the crowd was constantly cheering that she was the first woman. And no other woman passed me, he said. Derek Clayton, who held the world record marathon time of two hours, six minutes at the time, and finished well ahead of Ruiz, told the Globe, I saw her finish and I think it's a fix. I've got my doubts, I'll say that. (laughs) He said her legs, even her face, didn't look like someone who'd been training for a marathon. Neither were thin enough. And I just want to say here, she was five foot eight and 135 pounds. So she was not fat, but people who run marathons have a certain look. They're sinewy. They're sinewy. And you will hear and read, if you read anything about this, people saying she was chunky, chubby, fat. She was none of those things. And uh, in fact, um, Bill Rogers, although it was back then, he hasn't said it. Recently, in recent years, as far as I know, made some remark about cellulite on her thighs, and I can tell you, as somebody who runs in races, even the thinnest women,
1: i see, yeah, have
0: cellulite. I think there was some misogyny when people describe her as being fat, chubby, <sighs> chunky. I mean, she was five eight, so one 100- hundred. I would give anything know, at five four to weigh one hundred thirty five. Anyway, Clayton said, "I hope I'm wrong, but it's very highly suspect." Patty Lyons who was the fifth woman at Wellesley Square, the halfway point, but quickly gained momentum, passing three of the women ahead of her, said, going into the hills, I thought I was second because people kept telling me, come on, you're only 30 seconds behind. Now, I just want to interject here that people along the sidelines of the Boston Marathon are morons who will tell you anything. One favorite is one mile to go when you actually have ten miles to oh, go. What and and you just passed Heartbreak Hill when you haven't, when you're maybe four miles to go. You're going through Boston University area and the kids are all drunk by then Ugh. and they're screaming all sorts of shit. And you can't really listen to anything. But that said, everyone is telling Patty Lyons she was second. I think she had reason to believe them. About Ruiz, Patty Lyon said, I never saw her. Her name isn't familiar. Never heard of her. I heard I was second. It wasn't until I came in here that I found out I wasn't. Here being the Prudential Center underground garage, you know, where they had the press conference. Mm-hmm. She said, do I doubt she was the winner? I doubt it now. I doubt it very much. Then, according to the Boston Globe, she muttered another Oscar Miranda. Ooh, Race director Will Cloney was caught off guard by the whole thing. He didn't see the women's finish, of course, because he was holed up in the Prudential Center garage, slobbering all over Bill Rogers. But I really think the race director should be up there to see who the first woman over the line is. one would think. Cloney told John Powers of the Boston Globe a couple hours after the race that they had no proof that would allow them to overturn the result. But they were going to look into it. And if Ruiz didn't really win, they'd disqualify her. He said... If the medal had not already been awarded, it would have been held up. I have not talked to the young lady in question. I have no reason to accuse her of anything, but we do have grave doubts. And I'm like, why the hell haven't you talked to her? Jack Semple, Cloney's co-director, wasn't as diplomatic. Semple told the Globe, she's a phony. That's all I know. (laughs) And because the Globe and everyone else can't get enough of Semple's Scottish brogue, the Globe spelled phony with three O's. She's a Phony. Phony. Catherine Switzer managed to catch Ruiz as she tried to rush out of the Prudential Center after the news conference. While Switzer was suspicious, she wasn't certain Ruiz had cheated. Switzer was just confused. She couldn't figure out what had happened. It didn't make sense, which is why she wanted to, so desperately to talk to Ruiz. Switzer said later it was beyond her comprehension that somebody would fake it, so she wasn't even thinking that at the time. When she started talking to Ruiz, though, Switzer did begin thinking that. She asked Ruiz how many miles a week she'd been running, and Ruiz said about 50 or 60. Marathon runners at that level train at least 100 um, miles a week or more. So Switzer said, wow, you must be doing some great intervals. And intervals are you run, like you do around a track, you run a slow, then a fast, then a slow, then a fast, and it builds your strength. Ruiz was like, yeah, someone else asked me that. I don't know what those are. (laughs) Switzer was now convinced no runner of that caliber or anyone who was even a mid-level runner wouldn't know what intervals were. The day after the race, Ruiz was interviewed by Channel 5's Good Day program. She said, I've been crying quite a lot since yesterday afternoon. I came up here to run a race. I wanted to finish. I had no idea I was going to be the first woman. I'm happy I finished the race. It was a big accomplishment for me. Above an April 23rd Boston Globe front page headline, Ruiz Sticks to Guns in the Face of Skeptics, was a photo with another headline, Did These Feet Run 26 Miles? Ruiz had inexplicably let an AP photographer into her hotel room, and the photo was of her in a chair on the phone with her legs stretched out on an ottoman in front of her, and the photo was taken from down at her feet. Weird. Although I want to say, as someone who's run nine marathons, my feet were always fine, although shoes are better now. I know some people have major feet problems, but I never had bloody toenails or even blisters, but that's yeah. just me. But in any case, Boston Globe writer Joe Concannon wrote that the fact she insisted she ran it and won was essentially the story she gave out to the media two days ago, and she stuck to it steadfastly even though the overwhelming weight of evidence that surfaced in the wake of her stunning finish seemed to shoot her argument full of holes. Concannon listed that evidence. Not one photo of Ruiz anywhere on the course except mm. the finish line and an extensive review of official photos, photos from photographers from 10 newspapers and two freelancers, and the raw footage from WGBH-TV's coverage, which included cameras stationed, set up along the course so every runner passed by them. Not one runner who finished around the same time she did recalled seeing her. And I can tell you from experience of running marathons, you end up seeing the same people running at yes. the same pace as you and you even kind of make friends who you'll never... That's what I was going to
1: say. Like like my ex-husband used to run a lot of races. He ran a few marathons, not the Boston. He didn't qualify. But every single race and, he, you know, pretty much every weekend if you're a runner, there's right. a race... And it would be the same, like I would be waiting at the finish line. And was, I'd see the same few people and I know, oh, he's going to be, he's going to be soon because this one guy. woman was always like in front of him. Right. Every and, single race. And when you're
0: in a race, especially one that long, I mean, I know the fastest runners, they're not chatting. Like no. people who are on my speed, you kind of, you're talking to people you and stuff, people. but you are aware of who's You would definitely know the people to. around her would have. Yeah, And again, Because there were so few women, the men all around her would definitely have noticed her because men were hyper aware, many not wanting to get beat by a woman or not wanting a woman to be faster than them. The men were hyper aware of the females around them in a race. Another more evidence was every expert on running that reporters talked to said there's no way Ruiz could have improved 25 minutes on her New York marathon time in five months to run the third best ever time by a woman, particularly when she had no history of running races. It's just not possible, (laughs) even as much as you train to improve your time that much. Several spectators, eventually dozens of them, would come forward to say that they'd seen Ruiz running on the course. Some even said they had photos of her. But when those were investigated, for instance, the photos were looked at. They weren't Ruiz. One person who came to the Boston Globe's newsroom was sure she saw her. They showed her a photo and said, who did you see? And the woman pointed to Jacqueline Garreau. Most of those people were obviously wrong. The race director, Will Cloney, though, still wouldn't pull the trigger on disqualifying Ruiz's win, even after a private showing of all the TV footage. Cloney acknowledged Ruiz didn't appear in any of the film. He said, publicly, all I can say is that we can't accuse her until we have all the facts. We're not going to decide this in a couple of days. So far, all we have is is circumstantial evidence. If it's true she didn't win, it not only disturbs me, it distresses me. Why are we knocking ourselves out to put on this race? So many people have worked so hard for so long to put on a good race. That's hard enough without something like this. He said the person he felt worse for was Jacqueline Garreau, and I'm like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) <laughs> cloney was being cautious but given the oscar miranda incident of the year before you'd no. think they would have put some system in place so it would be easier the next time this happened to prove the person didn't especially run. since it was a, the year before it wasn't like it was like 10 years ago i know but they didn't well, Cloney says all the evidence is circumstantial, and I'm like, how do you prove something <laughs> something didn't happen? How do you prove a negative? Joe Cannon in his article, points out the most compelling non-circumstantial evidence. Two Harvard students, John Faulkner and Sola Mahoney, said they saw Ruiz jump into the race at Charles Gate Street about a half mile from the finish. Oh. Faulkner said, I saw something across the street that was a little strange. I saw a woman stumble out of the crowd. She looked like she wasn't a runner. Her arms were flying all around, but she was wearing a number. I didn't take her very seriously. I watched her stumble along the right-hand side of the street. When the Canadian girl came by, everybody thought she was the winner. I went home knowing a Canadian girl had won. I picked up the New York Times and the Globe this morning and saw the picture of the girl that came out of the crowd. I can't believe she was still recognized as the winner. What happened was so obvious. That's what prompted me to call the globe, unquote. Mahoney said, I saw her in front of me. I didn't see her come out of the crowd, but she was running in a very awkward manner, almost out of control. My feeling was nobody was taking any notice because everybody felt she was an imposter. Nobody was applauding. She did in fact have a number, but I said to my friend, is this for real? Unquote. Hmm. If you watch, even if if you don't run, if you watch video of Ruiz... (laughs) approaching the finish line is painful to watch not in the way it's painful to watch somebody who's run a marathon approach the finish line but because she's so obviously faking it
1: because when you say like the elite runners if you ever go to any races
0: right they're not doing that and and they don't some of them don't even look winded right and people who are exhausted and stuff aren't flailing around the way she is i mean it's just tony Rivas, a woman who had a radio show about running was stationed at mile 13 for WGBH-TV explicitly to look for women runners. She told Joe Kincannon, We didn't miss any W's, and we saw the first 15 women go by. We never saw her. Switzer, who was in the golf cart monitoring the women's race, had gone six or seven minutes in front at the halfway point of the race to make sure she wasn't missing anyone and was following the lead woman, Garot. She asked spectators if any woman had run by just to double-check she hadn't missed one, and everyone said no. Bill Rogers told Concannon he didn't believe Ruiz ran the race. There are too many inconsistencies, he said. But he added, I don't think she's seeking publicity. I feel sorry for Rosie. Someone should take her aside and say, Rosie, the runners will respect you if you admit you made a mistake. Don't let what happened to Oscar Miranda happen to you. She'll get taken apart by the media. I think she was in a position where she had to run because her company paid her way. Mm. She jumped in and by mistake ended up winning. And I, I think Bill nailed it. And you'll hear more later. I think with Oscar Miranda, the tabloids and the radio sports shows and stuff brutalized him. I think that's what Bill was referring to when he said, don't let what happened to Oscar Miranda happen to you with Rosie. Two days after the marathon in New York city, the organizers of the New York City Marathon were looking into Ruiz's 2:56:31 finish five months earlier. Fred LeBeau, president of the New York Roadrunners Club, which held the marathon, said, In brief, we're sure she's a fraud. We're checking our tapes of her actual performance last October in our marathon. Lebeau called Ruiz an imposter and said, I have spoken with dozens of runners in the Boston race and no one saw her move up, including our own spotter at the 22nd mile. One of the things that pissed them off in New York was that Ruiz had missed the official entry deadline for that marathon, but she wrote and said she'd had operations for a brain tumor in 1973 and 78 and running meant so much to her and (laughs) helped her recover that she wanted to run in it. They decided it was a compelling reason to let her run. Mm. Now, the New York Times was checking out that story. They had the name of the doctor, a Cuban immigrant in Florida who treated most of the Cubans in the Miami area, and is the doctor whose name Ruiz gave as her doctor. He seemed to back up her story, but the Times was still dubious. They couldn't fully confirm it. Hmm. Fred LeBeau and Dennis Donahue, Donahue was president of the New York office of the running club, said like others had, Ruiz didn't know the most basic running terms when they talked to her after the Boston race. Ruiz told LeBeau, for instance, that she belonged to no running club and had no coach, which is an oddity for a runner of that caliber. They all have coaches and belong to running clubs. But Steve Merrick, president of the Suburban Roadrunners Club, which had just formed two years before, said Ruiz was a member of his club. He said she'd joined the Tuesday before Boston. (laughs) Merrick, (laughs) Merrick, an insurance adjuster, and runner is described in the article as flamboyant westchester county running promoter who has been shunned by the mainline new york running groups merrick was also maybe not the best guy to come to ruiz's defense sometimes derisively called superman because he liked to run with a red cape on he was thrown out physically of the 1979 new york city marathon for running under a false name Hmm. how did that happen Well, it started in 1978 when Merrick lied on the New York entry form saying he'd finish in about 2.38, which got him his official number in the race. He later said he'd meant to put 5.38. Well, that's an honest mistake. An honest mistake. mistake. In any case, he didn't run the whole race, but crossed the finish line, and they found out and he got disqualified. So in 1979, he tried to run under a different name, but Fred LeBeau recognized him and (laughs) grabbed him and threw him out of the race and he was banned for life um and that's why he formed his own running club well you know the boston globes joe concannon had said merrick had said on monday night after the boston marathon when asked if he'd seen ruiz before he said a couple times in elevators but Hmm. by tuesday he was saying he saw her at the starting line 15 minutes before the race and they waved to each other Merrick had run the Boston Marathon, or it was at least in Boston, and appeared on the Channel 5 interview the next morning with Ruiz and Bill Rogers. Merrick by then had appointed himself Ruiz's PR person and advisor and was pushing the narrative that she'd won. Rogers told Merrick off camera, watch yourself, you're making a mistake. I think Rogers felt that um, Merrick was exploiting Ruiz. Dennis Donahue of the New York Running Club said that Merrick may be a clown, but he's not a fool. He knows a good public relations ride when he sees one. I think he and a lot of other people are just jumping on her bandwagon. Ruiz was back at work two days after the race, where her co-workers cheered and toasted her. One, who wanted to remain anonymous, said, Everyone's just stumping on her because she's an outsider to the running world, and she pulled it off. No one who knows her around here doubts she did it. It's ridiculous that no one believes her. Jack Emtage, president of the company she worked for, and her boss said... This girl has been pushed and pulled around backwards and forwards for the last thirty-six hours. She's absolutely beat, shot. This questioning has been as bad as the marathon itself. He said he and her co-workers had complete faith in her. She said she ran every step and we believe her. We're confident she did it all and we're proud of her. The article describes Emptage as a trim middle-aged man who runs ten miles a day before work and has hmm. entered in the New York 80 New York City marathon. Empton speculated that Ruiz is built more like a man, and Checkers may have thought she was one, not a woman. Though so this misses the point that women at the time had a great, giant, honking W no in front shit. of their name. And they, they were looking at numbers, not people, actually. He castigated the people who called her a phony without any evidence. They're calling the verdict without the trial, he said. He said Rosie had called him Monday morning before the race. She was really up for it psychologically. There are some days when you're just on and everything falls into place. Well, I think it was just one of those days for Rosie. Everything clicked. Hmm. Her neighbors at her apartment building said they'd seen her running in the mornings and were surprised at the instant reaction that she was a chi. Quote, the question isn't whether Rosie's victory is unusual. It's whether it's impossible, said one neighbor who wanted to remain anonymous. I guess we just don't like the unexpected to happen. Neighbor Bobby Allenbrooks, 28, said, I think if she cheated, she should be shot. And if she didn't <laughs> cheat, the people who are saying she did should be shot. Hmm. And this is Maureen saying, I think the reporter who actually put that in a story should be shot. And <laughs> as should the editor who kept it in. The guy was obviously just being a smart ass ass. I know. Of course, New Yorkers be New Yorkers. Everyone from the running club folks on down save their biggest criticism for Boston itself. Many of our listeners may not know this, but there's a centuries long feud and rivalry between the two cities. The New Yorkers were appalled that the checkpoints only checked the first hundred runners that passed, and it was also loosely organized. The New York City Marathon is much more tightly organized and does things much better, they all said. (laughs) The implication being that it was Boston's usual provincial old-fashioned and backward way of doing things that was really to blame. Back in Boston, Jock Semple said if it turned out Jacqueline Gereau was the actual winner, he'd get her a champion's medal if he had to give it to her himself. That poor girl, even if she gets the medal, she doesn't get on the victory stand. That's the thing she'll never be able to get back. He also told the Globe there will be tighter checkpoints for the 1981 race. Mm. We'll have checkers for the women in the future. Until now, we never thought it would be necessary. Meanwhile, yeah. in New York, things were moving at a fast pace. Fred LeBeau, the president of the New York Roadrunners, said Ruiz could be found in none of the photographic evidence from October's New York City Marathon, where she crossed, as I said, the finish line in two fifty six thirty one. On her entry form, she put that she thought she'd finish in four hours and 10 minutes. Steve Merrick, her advisor, told the press that he and Ruiz were considering suing the New York Roadrunners for defamation. Merrick Mm -hmm. said proving Ruiz finished where she did in New York was the key to proving she was telling the truth about Boston. But one small problem emerged. Susan Morrow, a freelance photographer who took photos for places like the New York Times, was on the subway to the race's finish in October, the New York City Marathon's finish, when Ruiz, in running clothes and with an official number on her shirt, sat down next to her on the subway. (laughs) Ruiz told Morrow she'd run about 10 miles but turned her ankle and had to drop out. She said she was going to watch the finish of the race. Morrow said, that's where I'm going too. We can walk to the finish line together. The two even exchanged phone numbers and talked about getting together in the future. Morrow said the two of them got off the subway and walked together to a point behind the finish line where a race official took Ruiz's number off of her shirt and fed the barcode into the reader that recorded times. They were a little more sophisticated than Boston. It's not clear if Ruiz deliberately misled the guy or if he just assumed she came across the finish line and grabbed it. It was kind of chaotic there. Three days after Boston, a pack of reporters caught up to Ruiz and Merrick on the street in New York. As they peppered Ruiz with questions about Susan Morrow, Ruiz said, the name Susan Morrow doesn't ring a bell, and I don't remember riding any subway. Leslie Visser of the Boston Globe, who was there, described Ruiz as confused and bewildered. Visser said she was being pursued by reporters from publications and TV stations from around the world at that point. Reporters peppered her with questions about whether she took oranges from anyone or water on the Boston course, what landmarks she remembered, who she talked to, etc. I don't know. I don't remember anything she said crying before Merrick rushed her away. He told reporters that Ruiz wasn't living at her apartment and the building owner had put a security guard outside her door because so many reporters were trying to get in. Merrick to Leslie Visser reiterated that he waved to Rosie Ruiz at the start of the Boston Marathon and saw her again at the finish. I can't say what she did in between because I didn't see her. Maybe she ran it. Maybe she ran it in her head. If she ran New York in 2.56.29, I tend to think it's possible she finished Boston in 2.31. Seeing her at the start line in Boston is a problem, which I don't think Steve Merrick realized. The only way to get from the boston start line into the city is with a car there's no subway or public transportation you can take from Hopkinton, so somebody would have had to if she was at the start line but didn't run the whole marathon she would have had to have a a car Mm -hmm. Um, okay merrick also said no sane person would jump into a race and take credit for winning but rosie's convinced she won If it's determined that she did win, there is quite a lawsuit in this. People have called her a fraud, a cheat, and a bloody phony. That's slander. Merrick dismissed questions about the fact that he didn't seem to know much about Rosie's running or training, even though she was a member of his running club. (laughs) We're an informal club. I can't possibly know all 1,500 members. I just supply them with schedules and things. The New York Daily News said it would give an unspecified amount to a charity if Ruiz would run the New York Marathon route, not the marathon itself, but like that. Yeah. Whatever, run the route. But of course, she didn't respond to that offer. The next day, Merrick held a news conference with Ruiz at his side, wearing her first place medal. A reporter asked if she remembered one landmark of the last 20 miles of the Boston Marathon. I remember houses and churches and some twisting roads, she said. Hmm. which uh, i can tell you if you've run the boston marathon that's not what you'd say at this point leslie Visser wrote ruiz was holding back tears apparently ruiz had agreed to take a polygraph at a later date merrick said which is not a good idea Maureen says Hmm. ruiz also told reporters she trained for 15 weeks which is about half of what even basic training for a marathon would be she said she ran around central park after work and sometimes in the mornings but pointed out that running was not her profession. So she wasn't doing it as often as the better runners were, Mm -hmm. which didn't help her cause. (laughs) Fred LeBeau, New York Roadrunners president said, let her run in my race and prove herself. If she does well, I'll get on my knees. I realize I've called her a fraud. If she's for real, let her show it. He said that reviewing the tapes of the New York city marathon 65 men and seven women crossed the finish line during the two-hour and 56-minute time. None were Ruiz. She has the certificate of completion through a mistake, and she capitalized on it, he said. Merrick was now sounding less certain Ruiz had run Boston, but still sticking with her. He said, I think she is innocent until proven guilty, but I realize there is strong evidence that she did not run the whole race. Maybe she didn't run. Maybe she's a cheat, but people have not treated her like a human being. We don't plan a lawsuit at this time, but we don't rule it out. (laughs) Ruiz's boss, John M. Tage, told reporters that she was going to take some time off from work. He said, she is shot physically and emotionally. I don't know what the story is anymore. I'm running my own marathon, May 4th. I don't think Rosie will enter. But Merrick Mm. and Ruiz did have a race planned, the George Washington 10K on July 5th. Originally, it appeared Ruiz was going to run in the New York Roadrunners 10K, scheduled for that upcoming Sunday, but then she decided not to. On Friday, April 25th, the New York City Marathon stripped Ruiz of her finish there. It is sad but true Rosie did not finish our marathon, LeBeau said. At a news conference, LeBeau showed the video of the time around when Ruiz supposedly finished, and she was nowhere to be seen. He said he'd called Will Cloney, the Boston race director, to apologize, Since obviously Ruiz didn't have a 2:56 in New York, she wouldn't have qualified for Boston. LeBeau said it was sad because, to me, Boston is the most important marathon in the world. Also at the news conference was Cindy Wuss, a 22-year-old Rutgers University senior who lived in Brooklyn. Wuss finished the New York City Marathon as the 21st woman. Ruiz's time had made her 23rd. Wuss Hmm. said she hadn't seen Ruiz anywhere on the course. I didn't pass her and she didn't pass me. She was asked if it was possible. She just didn't see Ruiz, but that she was there was said it wasn't likely. When you run a marathon, you develop a sense of where you are in a familiar relationship with people in front of you and behind you. When I finished, it still wasn't too crowded and I would have and should have seen her and didn't. Meanwhile, in Boston, things were moving at a slower pace. Boston Marathon race director Will Cloney said they were about 85% done with their investigation. On April 29th, more than a week after the marathon and my 19th
1: birthday,
0: the Boston Globes' Neil Singlace reported that Cloney that afternoon was going to disqualify Ruiz. Many had made the point that since New York already had disqualified her, she was automatically disqualified from Boston, but Cloney wanted to tie up all the loose ends. The night before, Ruiz was flown to Boston by WBZ-TV, which also paid for her hotel room, In exchange got an exclusive TV interview. While this kind of checkbook journalism, as it's called, may be the norm in the UK and other places, and the US legitimate news outlets don't pay or offer favors for exclusive access. So this set off a minor uproar among the press, but the public probably didn't care too much. They just wanted everyone to get the real story and tell them what happened. Ruiz met with Cloney that afternoon, then was featured on WBZ's Eyewitness News. WBZ then hosted a news conference for all the press in a conference room at the Colonnade Hotel, where they were paying for Ruiz's suite. Ooh. A Tearful Ruiz faced a hostile press. She'd already gone through the ringer in New York, and the Boston press now wanted their piece of the action. Singles wrote that Ruiz desperately attempted to convey her feelings, her voice constantly quivering, choking up at times and openly sobbing steve merrick of course was at her side consoling her with gentle pats on the back mm-hmm. ruiz sobbed as she told the press i can't blame people for saying that i didn't finish the race the facts are stacked against me i've been trying to duck people all week long there are so much more important things going on in the world than this happening to me such as the danger of world war three i've mm-hmm. spent yeah. I'm sorry. I've spent one whole damn week running from place to place because of this. I feel it's something I've earned. And she means she feels she earned the win uh, running. Mm. She said she felt Cloney would do everything he could to get the truth, but implied that the truth was that she had run the race. She was asked if she would run the New York marathon in October. Fred LeBeau had said he'd give her free registration, but she said no. She made it clear that she hated LeBeau and the things he'd said about her. She Mm -hmm. said Cloney, on the other hand, had treated her well, and she'll still respect him, even if he disqualifies her. She said sorrowfully, I'm afraid this controversy will be with me a long time. Mm -hmm. She was adamant, though, that no matter what, she was not giving back her winner's medal. Her parting shot to the press was, I hope the next time I run, you all watch me. If not for interest, then for curiosity to watch a woman who sprang out of nowhere only to win the most important day of her life. She'd live to regret those words. Well, she definitely sprang out of nowhere, didn't she? Cloney told the press separately that after talking to Ruiz, she sincerely believes in her own mind that she won the race. Ours was a very friendly and helpful discussion. I wanted her to understand what the situation was, but I didn't want to put her through an inquisition. The next day, a big headline in the Boston Globe said, Ruiz ruled out, Garot is in, and underneath it, marathon decision is unanimous. Will Cloney, at 2 p.m. on April 29th, read the decision aloud from a sheet of paper with an official BAA logo. But John Powers of the Boston Globe wrote that Cloney didn't even have to say what the decision was. Quote, once Cloney had brought a petite french Canadian and a fresh laurel wreath into the meeting room on the 10th floor of the Prudential Center Any formal statement was redundant. Montreal's Jacqueline Garreau is the winner of the women's division of the 84th BAA Marathon, just as she was on April 21st. The name of Rosie Ruiz, who wore an uneasy crown for eight days, has been stricken from the record, unquote. Cloney told the press he didn't really want to talk about Ruiz. I would rather hail Miss Garreau and do as much as possible to let Rosie fade into the background. Of course, the press, being the press, wouldn't let it go. Funny how everyone kept saying what an insult the whole Ruiz thing was to garro, but when it was time to focus on her, the press still wanted to talk about Rosie. The next question from a reporter, to Cloney, after he said that was, is Rosie Ruiz a liar, a fraud, a cheat? <laughs> Cloney answered, I would never use those words for another human being. People want me to say that she came up with the intention of doing this. I don't believe that. If she did do anything wrong, it was on the spur of the moment. I'm not a doctor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist. I wouldn't presume to figure it out. I am convinced that Rosie thinks she ran the race and won the race. She is equally convinced, and this is a little bit strange, that our information is overwhelming. She is as baffled as we are. The BAA 7-man Board of Governors had voted unanimously the night before to declare Garot the victor, Cloney said. Cloney told reporters that in the investigation, they charted the women's race from the midway point where the checker, a veteran of many marathons, compiled a list of the first 17 women, as did all the checkers all the way to Kenmore Square, which at the time was was about a mile from the finish. He said other highly credible observers and numerous members of the media whose sole assignment was to report on the women's race enabled us to reach the conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt that Garrow was the leading woman runner for the last 10 miles. Cloney added that he determined the previous Thursday, three days after the race and five days before the news conference, that the evidence was persuasive, but they wanted a final report from World of Color, the official race photographers who shot more than 10,000 images with high-speed cameras about a mile from the finish. Wow. I think that's one of those photographers where after the race, you can buy a picture yeah. have photos of your yep. Cloney said Ruiz does not appear in the photo sequence. Her number does not appear on any of our checklists. Cloney admitted her disqualification from New York on Saturday, two days before gave us an easy out, but the New York ruling might not have held up and it still wouldn't have answered the question about what happened in Boston. I wanted to find out what happened in this race. Despite what Ruiz had implied to the press the night before that Cloney would side with her, Cloney said, I'm sure after our conversation, Rosie knew what the decision was going to be. He said he couldn't find her to tell her in person after the board voted. He did acknowledge that she told him she wouldn't return the champion's medal. He said, I hope that on reflection, Rosie would decide it would be the sportsmanlike thing to do. But she told me she thought she went it fairly and squarely. I'm sure if we employed legal means we could get her to return it, but I have no intention of doing that. What he didn't tell the press that day, the way that conversation actually went about the medal, when he asked her if she was disqualified, if she give it back, she said, no, would you ask one of your daughters that? And Cloney had said to her, no, I wouldn't have to ask one of my daughters that, but he didn't tell the reporters that that day that he told Ruiz she could run in the 1981 race without having to qualify as an opportunity to vindicate herself, but the offer was only good for 1981. As for Garo, Cloney said, this is the best we can do at the moment, and he crowned her with laurel wreath. They planned a formal ceremony for May 14th that would include Bill Rogers, the men's champion, so that Garo could get the recognition she so richly deserves. Cloney also said there wouldn't be any radical reforms next year. The checkpoints would be the same. So will the numbering system with large W on women's bibs adequate to pick them out of the crowd. As reporters harangued him about it, he said a W is a W. Holy Christmas. He said that they were going to ask the checkers to make sure they got the top five women at each checkpoint. It turns out that once they got to a certain number, they stopped checking no matter how many women or how few had gone by. He said the breakdown was in communication. The information was there but unfortunately it wasn't getting to the stand and he means the stand at the finish line by that he meant that someone is supposed to alert the officials at the grandstand at the finish line who is leading in the women's race before the winner crosses the line fact he said it in such a roundabout way and no one had said it in the previous week Tells me that it probably wasn't true, but he didn't want to say so since the Boston Marathon's old-fashioned ways and particularly how they affected women were already being criticized. I think they did that for the men, oh, but yeah. not the women. Garrow went from the press conference to the Bill Rogers Running Center in Cleveland Circle a couple miles up Beacon Street to buy some shoes and then to the Elliott Lounge, a traditional Boston Marathon runner's hangout at the time, which was mm-hmm. flying a Canadian flag in her honor. Aww. When she entered she got a standing ovation and some of the customers broke out in o Canada which fizzled before they got to the end since they didn't know all the words. <laughs> Tommy Leonard, the owner of the Elliot Lounge, presented her with a bouquet of flowers and a bottle of champagne which Garou shared with the customers. Then she left for Logan Airport to fly back to Montreal. She told Joe Concannon of the Globe as she left that it was the most relaxed day she'd had in Boston since before the race. Her time in Boston of 234.28, by the way, was the fourth ever fastest at that time by a woman marathoner anywhere, not just in Boston. Greta Waits held the record of 227.33 and also had a 232.29 and Joan Benoit of Maine had a a 231.23. She told Kincannon she was so proud of, of the time she had gotten in the Boston Marathon. She also told him that what got her through the final miles was the thought of sitting next to Bill Rogers on the interview stand. When she was escorted to the press conference and saw Ruiz sitting up there with Rogers, she asked, who is she? What is her time? I wasn't prepared for this. Garreau, 27, was a respiratory technician at Hotel Dieu, a general hospital in Montreal. The April 21st race had been her first Boston Marathon, but she'd run eight others, including in Buffalo, Ottawa, and Montreal, where she'd had progressively good times. She was third in the New York City Marathon, running it in 2.39. None of that, of course, appeared in the press in the week plus. They were so frenzied over Ruiz, even as they were writing Garreau was the real winner. Steve Merrick, by this time, was having second thoughts about his partnership with Ruiz. Now that she was definitely out of Boston and it was definitive, and he wasn't going to make any money off of her. In Spokane, Washington, where he was for a race, he said, Ruiz pulled one of the dumbest stunts in women's sports history. The greatest crime in sports this century is the one that's been perpetuated against Jacqueline Garot. I've told Ruiz to quit trying to prove herself, to run for fun. I like publicity, but Rosie is not the kind of publicity I need. <sighs> Lee Montville of the Boston Globe said the only people who acted with any dignity were Cloney and Garot. He also was one of the only sports writers to show any empathy for Ruiz writing. They're using you. They're taking your story, whatever it is, and they're going to suck it dry for their own purposes. Then they're going to say, so long, Rosie. I say of the experience of the past two weeks, fold it and put it in your pocket and walk away. Don't run in any of these races. Don't go on any more shows. Never run again. Leave the mystery hanging and let the wolf pack move along. Fade. Go away, Rosie. Relax. (laughs) Live, Live your life. She probably never read that column, and if she had, probably wouldn't have paid it any attention, but she should have. She continued for a few weeks at least to give TV and press interviews and to talk about running and future races, none of which helped her cause. The last interview she gave was to Sam Merrill, a marathon runner and writer for The Runner magazine. He later told Will McDonough of the Boston Globe, she is a complete fraud. I asked her rough questions and she never came up with the right answers. She was was vague all times. Every time I tried to pin her down on something, she would just be evasive. She never ran the race. She just jumped in near the finish. A May 1st New York Daily News story, two days after Ruiz was stripped of her Boston title, seems to have been missed by most of the press because it seems like they would have had a field day with it. And just a few paragraphs at the bottom of page 344 The Daily News, the story said Norm Verche, sales manager for JD Camera Exchange, said that Ruiz had used a bad check the previous November, paying $37 for photo processing and identifying herself as an employee of ID Nomaru Securities. When he tried to contact her after the check bounce, that firm said she hadn't worked there for more than a year. He tried to reach her by phone, but it was a bad number, and she wasn't listed at the address she'd given. He recognized her, though, in all the photos from the Boston Marathon, and he had taken out a summons against her. In the ensuing weeks, she was charged with passing 10 bad checks for about $1,000. The New York Daily News two weeks later reported she was on an extended leave from her job at Metal Trading, Inc. without Mm. mentioning the checks at all which makes me think they hadn't seen that story, even though it was in their own newspaper. By now, she'd either been fired, actually, or was suspended and about to be fired, but that wouldn't come out until much later. I couldn't find out much about the checks situation, so I'm not sure if any of them were job-related. In early May, just days after she lost her Boston crown, and probably around the time she was charged with the check thing, Ruiz hired attorney John J. Keating of New York, and he became her spokesperson. It was probably because of the bad checks, but the New York media thought it was because she was being hounded and people were trying to get her to run races and stuff. Keating shut down any more press interviews. He told the Daily News, The girl just wants to go back to work and let the whole thing pass over. She wants to run in the future as a regular person and not as the dethroned marathon champion. He said that Ruiz intended to run in a race that summer, though he didn't know which one. Uh -uh. He said she's not interested in all this brouhaha. She will run again, but she's not going to run just to have people look at her time. The time she makes a secondary. She just likes to run. She Uh -uh. told me she is not interested in running for money. She believes that amateur sports are not a spectacle or a public relations event. In August, Keating talked to Ray Allen, one of the organizers of the Green Mountain Island Marathon in South Hero, Vermont, about Ruiz running in that race. Allen later told Will McDonough of the Boston Globe, he phoned me and he was interested in having her run the race. He means Keating, the lawyer. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't want any publicity, and I told him we felt the same way. We have a beautiful race up here, but it's not for the best in the world. It's for guys who run three-hour marathons and enjoy running. It's a beautiful route, and we like to think it's a well-run race. I told him that we wouldn't put her on an official entry list But I would have a number for her, and she could get it by coming to my house the morning of the race. I was going to have someone run with her in the race, so there wouldn't be any problems. Mm. We wanted her to come up here and be just like anyone else, have a good time, and enjoy running the race. But a few days before the race, Keating called back and said she wouldn't come. She had injured herself training. Mm, I bet. In October 1980, as runners geared up for the New York City Marathon, Bella English of the New York Daily News wrote that Ruiz planned to run Boston in 1981, though she didn't quote anyone saying that. She did talk to Steve Merrick, though, Ruiz's one-time advisor. He told English that he still spoke to Ruiz and that she'd changed apartments, though she still lived on the Upper West Side. He said she quit her job at Metal Traders, Inc. right after the Boston Marathon, that she'd changed jobs twice quote i believe she works in an office
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a good guess he said she was taking night courses studying real estate with plans to go into the business he said she was in good spirits and sounded perky despite reports she'd been seen running in central park recently he said she had pulled her groin muscle and that had prevented her from running for the past two months he said she plans to start running again soon but he wouldn't say where She knows that as soon as she steps out the door, someone will recognize her, and she'll have a pack of reporters on her trail, he said. Fred LeBeau, president of the New York Roadrunners, told Bella English he thinks Ruiz was writing a book. All crooks write books, he said. (laughs) But Merrick said that Rosie had actually turned down five or six lucrative offers for books and movies, he said. In her mind, she still thinks she won. Why don't people just leave her alone? In 1981, the Globe's Joe Concanon had a little item that said Ruiz was seen at a woman's basketball game at Madison Square Garden. Of course, I guess it's just enough to say it's a woman's game and not actually who is playing or anything. Yeah. It said she was besieged by autograph seekers and disappeared into the crowd. She claimed she was training, but hedged on whether she'd accept an invitation to run in Boston in April. She allegedly signed the autographs. If I don't see you in Boston, hang in there. Concannon doesn't say who gave him this information. And while I don't doubt there's some truth to it, you can always tell when a reporter is repeating gossip they're not sure about when they don't give a source. Mm-hmm. He asked Will Cloney if Ruiz was running that year. And Cloney said, I heard she was training, but not specifically to run Boston. Just before the April 1981 marathon, Cloney told Globe columnist Will McDonough, if she shows up, I'll let her run. She has not entered officially, so I don't expect her. But even if she comes on the day of the race, she can run. I promised her that. But the invitation is only good for 1981. Two weeks earlier, Ruiz gave an interview to a New York Times reporter, the only one her lawyer, John Keating, had allowed since he'd taken her on as a client. He said it would be the only one she would give. With the Boston Marathon coming up, he was getting daily requests. He wanted her to have her say then be left alone. McDonough, in his column about all this, said others say that Keating is simply trying to protect his client from herself, the nagging questions about the race and her past. Ruiz said she had not run another race since Boston and that she was injured, so not running currently. Keating said, we have endeavored to get her back into the sport, but the circumstances are very narrow and confined. You have to stay away from races where people are going to be using her. Hopefully she will be able to run some more. Ruiz told the New York Times reporter, they are trying to come up with a solution. If I were in their situation, I would do the same thing. And what she's referring to is people who are trying to get her to run races are trying Mm -hmm. to figure out um, why she did what she did. She said, if I wanted to make publicity or a movie, I could say the whole thing was a fluke. It's hard. Knowing what I know, it's hard to convince other people. And I think what she's saying there is... That if she'd faked it, she could get a movie or TV deal, but no one wanted to do anything showing her side of it that she'd really run and won, which she was still standing by. Yeah, McDonough revealed some details about what went on in Boston the year before. Marek told him that Ruiz confirmed to him on the flight to Boston for her meeting with Cloney that her New York time was an accident, that the guy at the finish line had ripped off her number and entered her in the computer. Marek said a few months later she got her certificate in the mail with her official time on it. She showed it to her boss, Jack MTage, and he said he didn't know she could run that fast Uh-oh. and offered to pay her expenses if she wanted to run Boston, so she said, okay. Two friends from New York joined her on the trip at her room at the Sheridan Hotel at the Prudential Center. Marek told McDonough that Ruiz said, and he believed that she took a bus in the morning because they had buses for runners. From the Prudential Center to Hopkinton with the other runners, bringing a book to read while she waited under a tree for the race to begin. And again, unless she ran the race or had a car or had somebody to drive her, that's not possible because once you get to Hopkinton, there's no other way to get to Boston. That's right. But Merrick thinks she did that. His theory is she either ran a little or decided not to run at all and made her way back to the city and then miscalculated. He said he thinks she jumped in around the point where the Harvard guy saw her and ran as fast as she could, which is why she was breathless but not perspiring or fatigued as if she had run 26 miles in the heat. He told McDonough, in my mind, it is all very simple. It just took time to figure out. This is a girl who has had some troubles putting tremendous pressure on herself to finish. Her boss, who is like a father figure to her, had put up the money for her to come to Boston thinking she can do under three hours. She Mm -hmm. wants to finish under three hours, but no, she's not capable of running all the way. She just can't do it. Her friends, Merrick said, who went to Boston with her still believe she did it. His theory is she went down the street and kept moving until she thought it was time to jump in. She did not have a stopwatch, just a plane watch. She just jumped in too soon. Then when she got to the finish line, she was surprised she won. She wasn't trying to win. She was just trying to come in with the same time she had in New York to keep her boss happy. And when she realized she won, she just decided to bluff her way through it. A friend of Ruiz, Susan Donegan, is the one who called Marac in the first place to have him help Ruiz after the shit hit the fan. Mm. She told McDonough she too believes Rosie ran the race. Rosie is a friend of mine, and I like her very much. This whole thing has been very distressing. I put a lot of time and effort into trying to prove that she won the Boston race (laughs) legitimately, but I couldn't do it. I'd give anything to prove all those people wrong. I got in touch with people who say they saw her along the route that day and worked real hard at trying to find positive proof, but I couldn't. But I still believe her, and I'll believe her until she tells me she didn't do it. McDonough also talked or stole the quotes from somewhere else to Marty Craven, a freelance writer from Delaware, who recognized Ruiz in the photos after the Boston Marathon. He talked to her in Central Park in March, a month before the race, where they were both running. He told McDonough she was a runner and I was a runner and she wasn't bad looking. And so I started a conversation. Hmm. She told me she qualified for Boston. She also told me she knew a girl who cheated in New York by taking a subway to the finish. I started to tell her how easy it would be to cheat in Boston. I'm positive that's the girl I talked to that day. On April 19, 1982, just 30 minutes before the starting gun of the Boston Marathon, two years after Rosie Ruiz was in Boston, she was arrested in New York on larceny charges. She was accused of embezzling $60,000 from her employer, a real estate firm. Yeah. Captain James Power of the New York Police Department said they've been looking for her since April 5th, when her employer, Richard Stevens Inc., reported she'd stolen fifteen thousand in cash and forty-five thousand in checks. She'd been working at the place, but yeah. hadn't been to work since mid-March, which is how she became a suspect. This is not the incident, by the way, of April 1980, where she was charged with passing ten bad checks for a thousand dollars. This is another yeah. incident. She was charged with grand larceny and forgery. She spent a week in jail before making bail, and in November was sentenced to five years probation. By then, she'd moved back to Florida. Also that year in Florida, another strange thing happened with Ruiz. Jacqueline Garreau was running a race in Miami, and after she crossed the finish line, Ruiz approached her and introduced herself. Carreau recognized her anyway, and a little in shock said, Why did you do that in Boston? Ruiz responded something like, I beat you once, and I'll beat you again. <coughs> Garreau just walked away. I was not interested in talking anymore, she told the reporter later. She's still saying it. She's just a pathological liar. I feel sad for her. I don't hate her. No, I feel pity for her. It's not fun to live with that feeling of being a cheater. Maybe it's just better for her to say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that to feel more peace, but she won't. In November 1983, Ruiz turned herself into Miami police. Ten days after they put out a warrant for her arrest on charges, she and two other women, Marta Upegi and Olga Del Sacaro tried to sell two kilos of cocaine to undercover cops at the Miami Marriott. The other two women had been arrested, and they gave Ruiz up to the cops. She spent 23 days in jail before making bail. A few weeks later, in January 1984, she married Alcaro Vives, who had gotten divorced from his previous wife that December. Shortly after that, she was sentenced to two years probation on the drug charges. In 1996, in the run-up to the 100th running of the Boston Marathon, Boston Globe reporter Jeremiah Murphy did a big feature on Ruiz that had details never revealed before. Steve Merrick revealed to Murphy that about six months after the Boston Marathon, Ruiz had actually confessed to him that she had not run it. His theory that he gave to Will McDonough all those years before is actually what happened, though The fact that she went to the start line, I don't know why she would say that, but I think like a lot of people who lie about things like that, and they still want to try to make it somehow sound legitimate. Yeah. Merrick, by the way, was now, this was 1996, a marriage counselor (laughs) in Lexington, Kentucky. Merrick said, I believed what she was saying at first. And let's face it, the BAA did a poor job of monitoring the female side of the race up till Rosie ran. Really, they didn't give a poop about what the ladies did. I have to say, though, Will Cloney was a wonderful man through it all. I was there when he wanted the medal back, but Rosie was adamant. She really believed at that point, I think, that she had run it. Will said to her, Go ahead, keep it, honey. That's okay. He looked at me and winked as to say, Look, she's had enough trouble. Let it go. And remember the woman, Susan Morrow, the photographer yes. who ran, rode the subway I saw with her? The subway. She, all these years later, had more to say. I think she and some other people were being nice and not saying everything they could at the time. But she told Jeremiah Murphy, the two women got off the subway after talking. Ruiz said she had to get medical attention. For the ankle, she said she had injured. Moreau was thrilled by the sights and sounds of the marathon finish and very excited and wanted to get to the finish line, which was hard to get to. The key to getting there... Moro said, was Ruiz. They repeatedly passed through police barricades, Rosie each time identifying herself as an injured runner and saying she had to get medical help. After they took Ruiz's number, Ruiz did not protest. As they parted, Moro and Ruiz made plans to get together for lunch. They traded phone calls in the days after, but never could arrange a meeting. Then, Moro said, one day she got a phone message requesting she call Rosie. Believing it was another friend by the same name, Morrow called the number and the person who answered the phone said metal traders. I was surprised it was her and not my other friend. So I acted kind of surprised and I said, oh, Rosie, it's you. I thought it was another friend of mine. And Ruiz said in a really weird tone, well, you forgot me already. Morrow said right there. I said to myself, I don't think this is something I want to get into. And she never talked to Ruiz again. But the most interesting thing that Jeremiah Murphy had in his story was his conversation with Rosie's boss, former boss, John M. Tage of Metal Traders, Inc., the company she was working for at the time she ran Boston. M. Tage told Murphy the day of the marathon... We were all in there with the radios blaring, and then we hear the winner, Rosie Ruiz from New York City. It was crazy. Everyone was jumping up and down. All was wonderful. Rosie comes back wearing her crown into the office, and everyone was really thrilled for her. All of a sudden, though, the phones start ringing, the questions. According to Emtage, he offered Ruiz a chance to redeem herself. He offered her a paid leave of absence to train for an upcoming marathon in upstate New York, and that may have been the Vermont one that the other guy was talking about. I felt I was going above and beyond for her to get back to a competitive level. I said, look, you go run the race, and whatever it takes to do the job here in the office will cover for you. But Rosie, you run that race, and I don't care what your time is. Just finish the race. She said she would, and well, exit stage left. A short while later, she told him that she had a bad ankle and couldn't run. Her biggest mistake, Murphy wrote, was telling MTAGE that she had been training on the roads of Montauk on Long Island. It was the same route that MTAGE, a marathoner, frequently ran. Mm. Strange, thought MTAGE, because he hadn't seen her running. Mm. The thing Mm. about being a marathon runner is, he said, you're running five or six days a week. People see you everywhere. They think you're nuts out of your mind because that's all you do is run. So when she said Montauk, I said, gee, Rosie, tell me where you're running out there. And she couldn't. Right there, I knew this isn't going to go the way it ought to go. Finally, (laughs) I said to her, you know, Rosie it's not making sense and this really has nothing to do with boston but it has everything to do with the fact that i can't trust you when i can't trust you how can i have you in the back office making large Ah. making large cash movements i felt i had no choice i had to fire her and um i'm wondering too if he's just being nice and not telling murphy but if there was some Some kind of
1: or if he had some kind of suspicions about her
0: and tage told murphy that ruiz consulted her attorney jack keating and contacted him with a request to be laid off rather than fired. MTAGE knew that it was a ploy so she could get unemployment, and he refused the request. Mm -hmm. Contrary to what Ruiz told the media in the hours after the Boston race, MTAGE says his company never paid for her transportation to the race or her hotel room. Huh. He said all metal traders gave her was the shirt with MTI on it that she wore in the race. MTAGE told Murphy, as I saw it and several of my colleagues saw it, she wanted to be part of the in-group at the office, and running was her attempt at being accepted. It was a fun-spirited group we have, everyone young and everyone running. There were corporate running challenges the whole summer. Close to 100 companies had people running. It was a girl trying to break through, the wrong way, obviously. The sad part was the company was very accepting. We have people who don't run well. So what? That was okay. They found their fun with it. But Rosie got all caught up with this crazy-ass lying, and then she couldn't get out. I expect it changed her whole life. Another thing that Ruiz told people in 1980 was that her birth name was Maria Morales and she had changed it to Rosie Ruiz because it sounded more American. But that's not true. Murphy talked to her aunt, Maria Groves, who said that Rosie was born Maria Rosaria Ruiz. It also turns out, despite the fact that her obituary backs up that she graduated from Wayne State, Nebraska, officials there said she only attended for a year and a half And never got a degree. Hmm. When the Ruiz incident happened, women runners were afraid it would set back their cause, but it actually helped because people were talking about running and women in running. And it's another thing that weirdly it may seem now led to more women running. And I don't think in the Boston Marathon documentary, Bill Rogers says in 2014 sad story, you know, but as far as I know, she still has that medal probably. And that's my... It's sad. Story, but it is sad. It that is she... sad. And I want to say, I do think that she didn't intend to win. No. I think that her boss is right. I think that she got caught up in it. She wanted to be accepted. I think she has some psychopathic tendencies. And I know sometimes when you say that, people think, oh, a murderer. But you know, I think one out of 10 people or something, most of them male, but some women have psychopathic tendencies. I also think though, It shows her ignorance of Boston and running that she didn't realize what a big fucking deal (laughs) it would be to double down on her lie. If she had been smarter, and I'm like, why didn't she just wait and watch more women go by before she jumped in? But I do think it was very important for her to impress the people she worked with. Yes, She obviously had issues with all the embezzling and stuff like that. And I yeah. think what really pissed people off, I think she still would have been an object of derision, but her insisting to the very end to everybody except for Steve Merrick, apparently, that she did it I know. and that she ran it, and also not giving the medal back, which just you have to wonder what was going through her head. But I do feel bad for her despite that. And the amount of vilification online still. And even then, like a lot of the sexist stuff, like her cellulite thighs. I know. Roger said at the time she had Irma Bombeck legs. And for people who don't know, Irma Bombeck was a, a columnist, a humor columnist back then who wrote about housewifey things. So I is she was super funny. She was very funny. She lived near us when we lived in Ohio. Oh, yeah. But, so I think the implication was that Rosie looked from being at stuff. Yeah. And like I said, she was five foot eight, 135 pounds. She was not fat or overweight. I do think once she got caught up in it, she couldn't, I don't think she really believed she did it. And one, I think they were Will Cloney and people who think that were giving her more credit, well, but I think, I think she just knew that she had to stick. With she it. just would not not. Yeah. She just would not admit. That is, you know, it's kind of like somebody saying they won a presidential election. But I wonder if what happened at
1: the New York Marathon. If she did that intentionally or if it happened and she was like, hey, great. Here's
0: my theory as a runner. I don't think she ran as well or was in as good a shape as she thought she was. I've known people who like want to be a runner, but they don't want to put in the work. It's like somebody wants to be a writer, but doesn't put in the work or an artist who, you know, who doesn't want to do the hard work. They want the. And I think she started in New York. You can jump on the subway. I think she Mm -hmm. started running in New York. And said, oh, this is hard. I don't want to do it. I want to fit in with all the people at work. I don't think she needed medical help. And she just, for her credibility at work, needed a finishing time. And I don't think she realized. Yeah. She just wasn't smart about it. Well, she
1: didn't know what she was doing. Right.
0: She didn't know enough about running to know what such a high finish would mean. Yes, I guess. uh, Definitely. And so she got caught up in going to Boston. I don't know why she lied about her company i know that's putting weird. her up and you wonder if she is stole money or whatever to, oh that could be not that, that it costs be. that much money to travel from new york to boston you take the train there's a hotel or the Sheraton with your friends yeah right i think that that freelance writer marty craven who told her a month before the marathon how easy it would be to cheat and probably explain to her yeah. how I think she fully intended to cheat from the beginning. And I do think she has mental health issues. And it's nice to see that some people like Bill Rogers and Jacqueline Garot, the only people who really lost anything by what she did are more compassionate about it than idiots on the internet and stuff but there have been worse cheaters and liars in sports look at lance armstrong i know it kind of lied through his fucking teeth about juicing lied 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 berated people who called him into question and it turned out he was lying the whole time. I know. I think someone like him is a lot worse. I yeah. of those guys taking stories. Yeah. So, did you know much about?
1: No, I, I did not. I remember at the time. I remember a little bit about it. You know, we lived yeah. in Maine, and it, people were talking about it. And I remember the fact that people thought she had cheated in the New York one as well and so uh, so I knew the bare minimum of it one thing I want to say if you look at like Joan Benoit her biography how she had to fight Right. To be a runner. It's just ridiculous. I know. And I think I mentioned this on one of our previous episodes, but I got in a big argument with people over the Olympics, allowing women to, you know, whatever it was, snowboarding or something. It's like every time a new sport is introduced in the Olympics, it
0: should automatically be both male and female. We are in 20 fucking 22. What does it take away from men if women are allowed to compete someone
1: was like well maybe there isn't enough interest from women it's like well why don't you offer it you don't have
0: the thing is and katherine switzer in her book marathon women makes this point very well the problem is if women aren't allowed to do it women don't even know they can do it and i don't think people younger than us realize how like when i was i was a fairly athletic youngster when we moved to augusta there were no sports for girls no Girls couldn't play little league. There was nothing for Bonoy, What is she about? You're a little older. She's than older you. than me. I think she switched colleges because there wasn't a running program there. And for and for our listeners who don't know, the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles was the first with a women's marathon, that and was Joni the first want it
1: and i've actually seen her running Mm -hmm. in person because i had a class a landscape painting and drawing class that was out near where she lives we were there doing a assignment a bunch of us and there was some guy running that was you know just his daily run and he was like just going and then here she comes along right by the guy (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) i was probably like fuck and then he's like oh it's jumping right okay but anyway that was a good story
0: And she didn't really commit a crime. Well, not at the marathon. She didn't commit a crime, but she did end up, I think she was a troubled person. I don't know her childhood. Oh, and that's another thing. She had said her father was a political prisoner, but what actually happened is he just stayed in Cuba and he Mm. ended up losing his farm to Castro because he was on the anti-Castro people, but his parents, her parents got divorced and stuff. And, but it wasn't that. He was a political prisoner. He just didn't want to come to the U.S. with her mother and the kids. I do think she has. She's one of those people who's just loose with the truth and does what and she, she wants. Has... And then people like with her obituary, which had her married name Vivas, people acted like, "Oh, she disguised what her name oh, was. Jesus. Oh, and she didn't put the marathon in her obituary." And so well, can and it's you like, blame why her? Would she? Even that Jeremiah Murphy story, he put what her address. And Florida was in the paper and he made some snide remark about it. And I'm like, why 16 years later is she still being made to pay? Didn't she pay enough by the way she was treated, which was way out of proportion with. And like I said,
1: it is stupid. It's not fair to the other people in the race. Also,
0: and Jacqueline Garreau, you cannot read her name without Rosie Ruiz being mentioned. And I'm like, why don't people, Jacqueline Guerrero won the 1980 Boston Marathon with the fourth best time of a woman marathoner at that time in the world. Why do people have to mention Rosie Ruiz with it? Because Ruiz didn't win it. It's not like Ruiz won it and was then disqualified. I I don't blame Rosie Ruiz for that part of it. People just can't let that go. I know. Jacqueline Garo. there was some article, I just didn't have time to get all in, where she's like, fairly recently, you know, people need to get over this shit. Yeah, I know. You no, know, The first Boston her. Marathon I ran in 2005, which was the 25th anniversary of her winning, Garo winning, mm-hmm. she was like the grand marshal of the marathon. And so she was ahead of the course. Of course, since I was 30,000 people, yeah, I, know. Night, I didn't see her, but it was kind of cool. I think people just love it when there's somebody that they can hate I know. Without reservation and crap all over and not see the nuance of this person is not mentally healthy. Uh,
1: There's something wrong with her. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say one more thing. It just reminded
0: me of a a semi, a mini
1: scandal in the main running world back in the 90s. There was this guy. And he used to, he used to win all sorts of races. He was a good runner, but there was some article about him, you know, this running column or something. And he's mentioned that he had run the Boston Marathon like four times or something. Mm. All these other runners were like, no, he hasn't. He's only maybe once. And it turned out he had not run it four times. He'd only run it once. And he was always like. Well, I couldn't remember, and like there's some other brother. You're not going to remember running the Boston Marathon well, one right. time.
0: You remember how many times? Believe me, you ran the Boston Marathon. Any of the medals to prove it. But also, do you remember Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, a representative from God. Wisconsin, who lied? about his marathon time th- time th- oh. i don't know if it was boston but it was some marathon lied sliced a, an hour or something off his time but it's like how stupid are you don't know you know people like he was people are gonna check that he shit. was briefly running for president i can't remember it was 2016 yeah i remember when he ran for president or though. whatever that's all online man you can't lie there were a lot of things that's and that's another thing but my thing was getting too long a lot a lot a lot of scandals a lot of stuff there's always shit there's a lot of fakery a lot of people lying it's not like oh all these runners are too lazy just moral there's a lot of people oh runners are honest and all this and it's like no no they're not there's all there was all sorts of shit that i could have put in there and then people got all gun shy like there was this one marathon somewhere in massachusetts is somewhere within the year after rosie ruiz where this one guy was ahead most of it and another guy was behind it was on a lot of like windy roads and shit and the guy who was behind caught the guy who was ahead but it's not like boston where there's checkers and crowds and passed him and won and then the officials wanted to say he was cheating the guy who passed the other guy and won and the guy who he passed knew the guy didn't cheat and they couldn't convince the officials that (sighs) he didn't cheat and then they finally got it all straightened out but the guy is well, you, you've you ruined my credibility. There's all this stuff out there saying I cheated, like I ran through the woods. And so it's a, there's a lot of shit. But oh, anyway, um, yes, you have an NNW? Yes, yes I do. <laughs> so, oh, and before you do your NNW, I just want to say very quickly. So I watched that movie, See How She Runs with Joanne Woodward. Oh, yeah. It was on couple, TV in 1978, yeah. and I yeah. can't remember. I probably watched it again. I
1: watched it at least once more, yeah.
0: And there are some inaccuracies in that. For instance, she just decides she's going to run the Boston Marathon, and then she does, and then you couldn't. You, you yeah, You had to qualify. They actually showed the marathon. I could tell it was 1976 because they called it the run for the hoses because it was so hot out. It was 95. Oh, yeah. It used to start at noon. Now it starts earlier in the day. She and her ex-husband are, like, walking through the public garden in Boston. And it's obviously maybe late summer, early fall. And it's like, no, she's training for the Boston Marathon. It would have to be winter. But I really enjoyed it. And you should watch it on YouTube. I think it's one of those things that isn't supposed to be there. So for the first few minutes, they intersperse it with photos from that year's Boston Marathon. But then that stops. But anyway.
1: And this isn't a crime show.
0: That's but. okay. You're, you're allowed to do whatever you want.
1: Okay. So I am doing
0: My Cat from Hell, which uh-huh. is on Discovery Plus. Oh.
1: And we've both been binging it. Yeah. I'm almost done with you're it. You're
0: three seasons ahead of me, I think. So if
1: you're not familiar listeners, and we'll talk about it a little after, My Cat from Hell is a show that ran from, I think, 2007 to 2018, maybe. Yeah, I'm watching on Discovery Plus. It was on Animal Planet especially at the beginning it follows the formula of super nanny where these people are telling jackson galaxy who's an animal behaviorist about what their cat is doing wrong and he's like oh i've got to go there and help and then he goes and helps and tells them what they have to do and then they do it so i'm gonna go through the negative Nellie's 10 things and then we'll talk about it after okay Bad reenactments, I'm taking half a point off. Mm. I think what happens is I think some people send in videos of their cats or things happening to show, but they use those in the trying to explain what's happening with the cat and they make it seem like it was being filmed as it's happening. And and sometimes I think that the people stage the encounters with the cats. So I'm taking half a point off because it's phony and I don't need to see it. And also, I think that some of the "raw" and stuff like that has been added in to make the cat seem more mean. Narrative cliches, I'm taking a point off because, as I said, it's very formulaic, especially the first few seasons. Jackson tends to use the same phrases over and over again the formulas are the same i mean i'm still watching it all the time but i'm just it's just follows the formula of a lot of reality shows where oh, there's an issue oh this
0: especially a lot of like home renovation shows and main cabin masters and stuff the crisis the i don't know if i'm gonna be able to fix yes i don't know
1: if this will be fit yeah so taking a point off racial gender obtuseness i'm not taking any points off all different people a lot of them are couples but i'm not taking a point Enough, but i do notice that when he's talking to a male cat he calls him bubba and when he's talking mm. to female cats he calls them baby girl or baby okay i haven't noticed
0: that yet but now i'm gonna be looking out for lack
1: of good visuals no i'm not taking off any points it's just like people's houses i don't know it's pretty boring the visuals but they do show a lot of cute kitty cats and i love cats um missing pieces i'm taking a point off Mm. the way this show is the first like six or seven seasons it's half of the episode is one cat problem and the second half is the other cat and then in the later episodes they go back and forth between them but i feel like especially in the later ones they don't show as much of what he's telling them to do and stuff as far as homework you know he gives them i'm definitely
0: having that i'm in season yeah. six he in tells it.
1: them what you know, what they need to do with their cats to fix the behavioral problems. And it's very abbreviated in later episodes. So you're like, well, okay, I guess he told them to do stuff, but I don't know what he told them. Right. So that inaccuracies, anachronisms, now I'm not taking off any points. It's just, there's nothing to be inaccurate about that I can tell. Storytelling, taking off half a point because of all the, ooh, all the false drama, like the people repeated, and that also is going to come up later in repetition, but, oh, I think I might have to bring the cat to the pound. You know, it's like, okay, okay. We know you're not going to, because no one ever does in this show. So freshness, even though, like I said, it's formulaic, I'm not taking any points off because I like his approach. I haven't seen much about actually devoted to cats compared to like the dog whisperer guy that sees our... A lot of the dog trainers, it's about being dominant over the animal and you have to teach him to do this and that. With Jackson, it's more understanding the way the cat thinks and understanding what the cat is going through. It's really helped me. So I'm not taking any points off. Repetition, a point is being taken off for that because... It is extremely repetitious. And I don't, I have the Discovery Plus that has no commercials. So it's like, you know, when the commercial break is, the same exact thing happens before and after. And also, right. you see the same film footage of the cat slashing somebody, beating the drum. I'm taking off a point because he does beat the
0: drum, but at the same time, what does he beat the drum about?
1: The things he beats the drum about are stuff I agree with. Like, just getting your cats fixed. Don't declaw them. Don't well, You know, don't let them. I don't know. I hate. It's my negative knowledge. Okay. So he gets five points. Or they Ugh. get. My cat from hell gets five points. But I still like it. And I have watched almost every episode. And I can't stop watching it. Yeah, so- I agree
0: with everything you said. Although I'm only in season six. Except for beating the drum. Because. Because. To me, beating the drum is when you overemphasize that stuff. Like, I think about death penalty stuff on, like, some truth. But it's things like... I haven't felt he overdoes it as far as getting your cat fixed and or not getting them declawed. I think he's telling people who need to hear it. That's true. That they do. My issue, like you said, like the reenactments, there was one where the woman's boyfriend left yeah, before the before the show because of the cat. Yeah. But she had video of the cat attacking and him. It's and it's like, going, who was the cat attacking? Who's right. taking this video? Exactly. Because she was there, the guy was there, and it just felt like, is and they showed it
1: over and over again.
0: State? And also though, I will say about the show is I
1: like Jackson. Even though I my cats, I don't have many problems, there have been times when if I had known if this show had been on, it would have helped me a lot with some yes. cat issues I've had. Yes. And it is helping me even now just to understand how yes. they think I feel and the even same if you like... have had cats for a long time. And I do think that he's right. Um, yes. The, the stuff he's saying makes sense
0: yes and like with me my cats as you know but the listeners may not i got them three and a half years ago from the shelter and they were both classified as feral neither of them are vicious at all i've never seen one sign of viciousness or violence but they are not human focused and i've never even picked one up or petted Aww. one which is sad but i kind of knew it but milo is a main coon And he's got, just this past year, he was fine before, but this past year he's got matted. And I need to be able to pick him up and bring him to a groomer and I can't catch him which sounds stupid, but I actually cannot catch this cat. But Jackson's some of his lessons like playing with Milo, so I got Mm -hmm. one of those toys and he actually comes in at night every evening when I'm in the living room on the couch and wants me to get a toy. Or if I move it, he hears it and comes down. And so like you do things like that to bond with them and sooner or later I would like it if they were friendly and sat on my lap and stuff. But right now all I want to be able to do is catch Milo and bring him to a groomer to get his mats taken care of before it becomes a health issue. With yes, and it can be. But I had a cat that had, and Jackson would be very disappointed with me right now because I'm sure other people could catch the cats, but Milo gets very stressed out when I try to catch him and I freaks out. And especially since I have no groomer lined up or anything to do because I need the money and stuff, so it's not like so. If I caught him right now, it would be like just practice, I guess. Yeah. So, anyway, anyways,
1: I do love that show. I yeah, I'm going to watch some more after. Just a like week. Pet
0: Psychic. I used to watch it all the time. Yeah, I liked Pet Psychic too. I forgot about that. And it, it, I will tell people the Boston Marathon is April 17th. If you live in New England, it's on if TV. I, I'll take some It may be if on TV even around. if you're not.
1: I'll be in Boston. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, run well, across thank the you Thank you, everybody. Thank you for Thanks for listening.
0: listening. Good night. Bye bye ah
1: just a minute what, what? Supper's ready. okay we're recording
0: Mwah, thank you
1: that I'm was not, mom to tell I me i know s- i could tell her what supper is
0: ready he made you supper yeah what are you guys having
1: i had to pee okay <laughs> sorry
0: i can't pee because mom's on the toilet i heard